0: The CDC literally is like, if you want to test, you have to send your test down to Atlanta. We will do the testing. And they had extremely limited supply of testing, and also it didn't work. If the person doesn't understand that the bureaucracy is going to push them in these directions for the wrong reasons, and doesn't have the strength and the faith in themselves and their ability to analyze the world and the situation, defy the people who actually know a hell of a lot more than they do about many things that are important in the situation, then they won't be able to make their own decisions. So usually people want to be in the happy middle, actually, is my model here. Right? Like, like I I don't want to surpass the joke, but I damn well want to keep up with them. My approach has been to try to solve the problem at all.
1: Hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today I'm speaking with Shvi Moshawicz, a COVID forecaster, the writer of the Shvi blog, and the game designer at emergence.gg. We discuss Magic the Gathering, chess and computability, learning curves, COVID projections, the CDC banning testing, immoral mazes, selection effects, psychological malleability, Robin Hanson and medicine, institutional incentives, egalitarianism, civilizational collapse, populism, libertarianism, and pure math. This was one of the most enjoyable conversations to me. As, as you can tell, we discussed a lot of exactly what I like to talk about, and exactly what V is into as well. It's certainly quite a journey, it's three and a half hours, and you can see the timestamps uh, down below as well. And as I say at the end of the show, this was really an enjoyable conversation for me, to the peak meaning of that word and i hope it's enjoyable for you too without further ado here's shvi mashowitz will we ever see covid lockdowns in the u.s like ever again no awesome all right so i actually heard very recently while i was doing research for this that you are actually a hall of famer in magic the gathering so how is that like how did you get started playing magic and do you think it still has influence on you today I think that I will
0: never be free of that influence. I think that's core to who I am. Uh, so it started out, I was a chess player as a young child, and I was hanging out at the student union in my high school. And I saw some people had a rule book. And they were playing a game. And I was like, what is this game with these cards? And they're like, here, have this rule book. And they handed me a rule book. And then I tried to read the rule book. And this didn't work because nobody can actually learn Magic Gathering from reading a rule book. This is not how this works. Yes. But I then went to camp during the summer at which some people had some number of cards. And I watched them play and they explained the game to me. And I persuaded one of them to sell me literally 10 basic mountains and 10 red cards for a few dollars. And then I would split that deck with my opponents and we would play... With those 20 cards against each other, because that was how cool magic was, and that was how hard it was to find cards.
1: <laughs> Would you just always deck out? Like, is that? <laughs> it was, all them,
0: I mean, we, the rule was if no one could deck out, because there was only so many cards, right? So, like, if you, if the game stalled out and nobody could win, it was a draw. With oh. the higher life total one, or you know, whatever it was. So, like, there was a hill giant, there were lightning bolts, we killed a hill giant, and, like, we had all, the whole thing, and the big, the big, the big powerful thing was we had a 3-4. A uh, creature that couldn't be lightning bolted. If you drew that, you were all set.
2: <laughs>
0: but yeah, and so like after that, I got home, I bought myself uh, a starter deck. I got my best friend a starter deck, and you know together we played against each other. With uh, we bought boosters together, so we always had the same number of cards. And then it grew from there. And then one thing led to another. And then I was playing at neutral ground. And I was playing in tournaments. And then I was playing on the Pro Tour. Uh, as a junior, and then I was playing in the Pro Tour as a senior, and then I was professional, and then I was a game designer. Uh, I say this like it's all just sort of happened to me. I was very enthused about the entire process the whole way through. Uh, I was also a writer, a major deck builder. I briefly worked in Magic, R- Magic Gathering R&D. I still make games today. I'm making a uh, tradable card game on the Tidal's blockchain called Emergence at Emergence.tg. It's currently in beta. You can play it for free see how you like it. Uh, we, by the time this comes out, we should have some products available for sale, but the core base set of the game, which is primarily what people are playing with for now is free and will always be free. So, you know, you can just have your fun and then decide what to do about it later. But, uh, yeah. So the idea was just, I would just play as much as I could. It was the best thing in the world. Most fun thing I had. And so I would just, you know, I'd play after school. I'd play at the club, uh, I'd go to tournaments whenever I could. And people started telling me I was good and I should play in the real tournaments and try to qualify for this pro tour thing. I didn't really believe them, but I gave it a shot and it worked out. And then I hit it big and I was like, I can play for a living. And they said like, well, you can try. And I was like, okay. It wasn't a very good living. Let's be honest. <laughs> but it let you see the world. It lets you hang out with some of the brightest, most fun, like dedicated people and like try to figure things out. And write about them, and talk about them, and have fun with them all day, and I did that for about a decade. And at the end of it, I had you know a Hall of Fame career, I guess.
1: Yeah, something that's very interesting to me is that I kind of don't really know how well this filters for a kind of agency that you see a lot in certainly with startups, certainly with uh, certainly with the kind of online writing space, Substack stuff like that. There are things that obviously filter for like agency, uh, to like blaze your own trail. And I'm not sure if card games are like this at all. I remember when I was much younger, uh, I played, I played Yu-Gi-Oh! and even topped a few events. Very, very different game, obviously. I, I remember someone on, uh, it's another tradable card game for the audience. It's another tradable card game. I remember someone, uh, on YouTube basically said like comparing like Magic or Hearthstone, which is another similar game to, to Yu-Gi-Oh! is like comparing apples to machine guns. <laughs> Uh, because there's like no there's like very little limitation on what cards you can actually play uh, from your hand in one turn but you have this kind of crazy uh, you have this kind of like very different environment but to me the like the similar thing between the two is like you have these very well-defined lanes of experimentation and those lanes of experimentation aren't easy they're still quite difficult but it's kind of like transparent it's kind of like transparent that, like, you have to get good at that. You have to, like, in the end, you have to, like, reduce your opponent's life total to zero, right? That's how you win the game. Uh, whereas these, these, like, other things, it's, like, there are layers of these rules, and the rules aren't the rules that you think they are. They're not, they're not the rules that are written out there, and that kind of uh, maybe a bit more, um, maybe a bit more uh, defiant or, like, quote-unquote heterodox as much as that term is overused that's kind of testing for something a bit different. Do you agree? Like what kind of correlation do you think there is between the two?
0: So first I would just want to note that like, I wouldn't say it was the difference with a machine, an Apple and a machine gun. I'd say it's more like a Rolex watch and a $5 knockoff you bought on Canal Street that falls apart five minutes later.
1: <laughs> yeah, you can like that. That's, that's very good. <laughs> I mean,
0: it's trying to sort of, be a pale imitation of this thing, but then it's heavily advertised on cart with cartoons. So people buy it anyway. So it works out, but, uh, shade aside, uh, I do think that certain tasks and magic provide very strong filters, but I also want to point out that the question presumes that agency is a given that like mm. this person has agency. Like, you know, you have a 6 out of 10 for agency and I have a 7 out of 10 for agency and she has a 9, so she has agency. And I don't think it's like that at all, right? I think that as we go through life, we learn to have agency or we learn to not have agency. We develop the skill of having agency. We learn how to have agency. We learn how to have agency effectively. And that, like, how you're raised and, and how you go through life and what you encounter very much impacts that. So I don't think that When the players of Magic who did well first encountered the game, they necessarily had tons and tons of agency. But I do think that the players who succeed at the highest levels come out of that with a lot of agency. I think that it's impossible to succeed as a top-level Magic player without that kind of agency. I think being a streamer these days, it means you have to get in that chair, and you have to play that game, and you have to be on... Not just when you feel like it. You have to be on for like, you know, ideally 40 plus hours a week, always at the same time, always engaging with the audience, always being positive, always being interesting. And there's nobody enforcing that discipline on you. You have to do it for yourself. And similarly, back in the day, it wasn't visible. But instead, we had to test and develop our own decks. We had to be the research and development department. We had to run experiments. We had to do deliberate practice. We had to learn from our mistakes. We had to figure out all these different patterns. We had to learn to develop teams to work together, to make the teams appropriate to the tasks at hand so that we were all working towards the same goals. And when it no longer made sense, you had to find a new team. You had to make sure that like you proved the people who weren't doing their fair share or weren't good enough. You had to like seek out better groups. If you were the person who was like outgrowing your current group, you had to learn to get along with a wide variety of other people who were doing all these things. You had to learn to work together in some sense. Like all the magic players at the top would talk to each other and be friends and work both to make the game a better place and to make each other better at magic.
1: Right. Okay, That's actually very interesting. So the team dynamic was very important in magic, especially like, is that still true now?
0: Less, much less. Okay. Uh, So basically, right. Because back in the day, uh, there was a lot less in the terms of information sharing in public. There was a lot less in terms of statistics.
2: Right? Mm, Everything was yes.
0: done in person rather than online. And so if you didn't have a team that was good, that worked together, you were way behind. You were in the dark. And if you tried to do the same kind of thing in public, first of all, you wouldn't have other people on your level who could help you. So you just have to sort of take all comers. And this was much, much less effective. But also what you were doing would leak. So every team would just get whatever you had. And they would... Be able to improve it because they had the other things that were going on figured out that you didn't have time to work on. Whereas you didn't get the stuff they had. So you were at this huge disadvantage, right? Like if you discovered the big key thing, then everybody would have the answer for it and you wouldn't know what the answer was.
1: Mm, I I think that I remember on another podcast, the host compared it to like, to like trading, right? I, I think it's actually, I think it's quite different from that, but. I don't know, I wanna continue on this line of like so you have to arrange yourself in these teams, you had to be quite you had to like understand the social dynamics of functioning in that environment and trading off basically like agreeableness with uh with um competence, right? Is that like I don't know, like is that something that's that's similar now? I, I think that's
0: another myth. This idea oh, that interesting. agreeableness and competence like are fighting in some way. I think that what happened was if you weren't agreeable, you didn't learn how to be competent. And if you were agreeable, then you worked with other people who were also agreeable and you all made each other better, but you couldn't be an island, right? You couldn't work on your own and succeed in the same way because there was too many things to learn. Also, I was a trader, For several years. So I I can appreciate the comparison very directly and I would disagree. Uh, the most important reason for this is that trading strategies that you develop are persistently your strategies. And so Mm. your intellectual property is something you want to preserve permanently. You want to stay one step ahead of the game. You want to keep all of your intellectual capital and special not special secret sauce yours and contained. For you know years and decades, and obviously other people will eventually get it, and the market will change. But also, the market basically stays the same much, much longer and more reliably in the important ways than magic does. Magic is deliberately just transforming itself periodically. So what happens is there'd be a cycle where you'd go from major event to everyone just goes off with the knowledge that everybody got from the event, and then does some local stuff for low stakes for a while and then prepares for the next major event, at which point there's more and more, as you approach the event, secrecy. And over time, the secret uh stage has condensed itself down from a month to two weeks, to a week, to like a few days. Mm. And then at the end of that period, this is more the classic magic than modern magic, but still, uh what happens is you'd all, you have a chance to compare notes. So like during the tournament, you would you would conserve certain very specific bits of information that other people still didn't know about what you were up to, but you would already be talking about like the process of development. And there'd always also be this kind of exchange of information in this cautious dance, like right before the tournament where you try to get information from someone else to suss out what people are likely to do without giving too much away about your position. And you would sort of exchange esoteric hints with other teams in this little dance that you learned to do. Uh, and then afterwards, you'd all compare notes, right? So like on Sunday, the top eight were competing. Everything was out in the open by now. And like a common thing you would do is people from different teams would be sitting down watching the competition at the end, discussing the strategies, discussing, you know, how they got to various points, what was actually the right thing to do, what mistakes they made, how they found various things. And then you'd all write articles, reports on your development, what happened at the tournament. And you'd all try to learn from each other. And then you get ready to do it again. Right. And the teams periodically moved around a bit, but you had your friends, you had your like permanent connections, you had the people you're close to geographically. But it wasn't like trading firms where like they have a very like often legally protected intellectual property. Right. That's actually,
1: that's actually so interesting to me because this is something that I never really experienced is so. the kind of like the kind of like under the table information or like not under the table necessarily, but that kind of like secret information, that kind of like negotiation, whenever you went to this events, to these events, that that's like, that's fascinating to me because I can totally see it kind of reflected in your, in your writing nowadays, right. When you think about the motives of all these institutions and these groups of people, uh, do, do you want to speak more on that? Like what was the kind of strategy that you had in making sure that you kind of got the most information
0: Right. So the goal was like, you didn't really mind giving the other team any information unless it would hurt you. Mm -hmm. And most information doesn't hurt you, but if they're paying attention to what you are and aren't willing to say and what you are asking about from them and how you respond to their questions, they can often figure out if you're not careful what you're planning to do. And the more players are on your team the more dangerous your team is the more important it is for them to respond to what you're doing the care- more careful you have to be and so after a while like i was on team called the pantheon which was like 14 of the world's best players out of you know 3 400 people and so we almost couldn't trade anymore because there was no way to ask good questions that we cared mm-hmm. about but like we can talk about expected metagames, right? That we talk about most often is we'd say, I expect about 30% red decks, 20% blue decks, 15% green decks or whatever it is. And this wouldn't necessarily give away our position, right? Because normally you want to do something that you found something special that you don't think other people appreciate. So you don't necessarily expect everybody else to follow you. If you're just playing a stock deck that everybody else is playing with like one or two cards modified, but you just don't think you have an advantage. You just want to learn how to play the deck. Yeah, that looks... You will then expect other people to also do it, but like that's not where you want to be. Uh, in modern times, this is all transformed by streaming and public play and public gathering of statistics mm-hmm. such that everybody has these very strong incentives to be first, to reveal that they found it first, to like be the one who pioneers something, who sells it to the people. And everybody is developing their skills and everybody is playing so many more matches than they used to. And so the result is there's often very little left to discover when the time comes for the big event, when there is a big event. And Aww. it's very it's very, very difficult for people to like actually innovate in a major way. And so it used to be we show up to the event and we knew that most of the major teams would bring something spicy, right? Something special, <laughs> something different. And now the question is: who's got spice? Right? Like a lot of people are just I have no spice, or I have very little spice. Because the spice has already been found, so it's not spicy anymore, right? You get used to anything, and
2: it's not spicy,
0: <laughs> it's not spicy after a while. So you, you want to look for, okay, where is the where is the new spice? And so the few players who reliably brought spice, like, we really, really got behind. Like, we're really rooting for you. Like, if you're trying something special these days, we're rooting for you even more than you were in the old days, right? Because you're keeping it fun. Mm.
2: Yeah.
1: That's kind of an interesting aspect of just hyperconnectivity, right? Like I, I remember, I remember listening to a friend of mine who is a, a top level youth chess player in in Canada. Uh, even just complain about basically like computability and about openings, right? And you see this at the top level as well. You see this from as old as uh, as old as body, Bobby Fischer knew this was kind of coming. Uh, not necessarily even with computability, but just with openings. With like basically like the more you see this, uh, the more you see this come around. Like the more the game is like quote unquote known. Right. And even with something like Magic the Gathering, where the cards are refreshed, where the game actually like fundamentally changes, if you just have like more communication, like it gets known faster, even if there's some change. Right.
0: Right. I mean, chess is kind of like infinitely whammyed in this sense, right? Because chess has the problem of there's no luck. Every game starts in the same position. Every game has the same components and it never changes. So the knowledge that's been built up over the years is still preserved. So when I was a chess player who was taking it reasonably seriously, went to a chess camp for a week, a few years, like placed 18th at elementary nationals one year, that kind of thing. And the problem was, yeah, you spend a lot of your time memorizing end game maneuvers, memorizing openings, looking for patterns and learning the patterns. And you knew your specific types of lines and you didn't know that much about other lines because you had to specialize if you wanted to be good. And this is the opposite of the way we'd like the game to play, right? You'd much rather have people play a wide variety of different situations and positions. And as we learn more about what's good, there's more and more pressure to just memorize stuff. So like chess has this problem, but also there's something freeing in the computers being super powerful and knowing all and being able to, and, and also it means that they can evaluate your moves and you can learn much easier, like what's good and bad, much more insightful. So I had the opportunity about a month ago to watch one of my good friends, uh, Wilcox um, from back in the day. I don't know him that well anymore, but I used to work with him. It was great. And we would, you know, he he used to be a backgammon player, and now he's gotten back into it. And he was at the Backgammon World Championships. And I got to watch on YouTube backgammon players. And backgammon is a solved game now, basically, right? The, the, the bots just know the answer to how good each position is for each player. If, with perfect play with exceptions if the game goes really crazy where the computer gets confused but like 99.9% of situations or something the computers or at least 99% the computer's really really good and so it actually made the game so much better to watch and so much better to think about because you think of it as a puzzle you're trying to find out what the right plays are and they're like oh, I can't believe Will found that play right because like you know there's a thing on the right of the screen that just tells you what the right answers are. Like, right? what's the best possible move? What's the second best possible move? What's the third best possible move? And that game starts out in the same position every game, but between the various dynamics of what happens when you roll the dice a lot, and your position in a match, where the more points everybody have, the more points different players have, the more the dynamics of risk, reward change. Like the situations became really different. Like they would talk about, like this is really difficult to find. This decision is, like, tricky. Someone might make a mistake. You know, like, wow. And you think about level of play, right? And, like, all of this stuff is just much easier. And it made me much more interested in playing backgammon. If I didn't have the solver, I would never have considered playing any backgammon. With the solver, it's not, like, this kind of cool thing where you can look back on your game and it can tell you, oh, that move was a mistake. You lost 0.12 equity there because you should have done this other thing. And, you're like, huh, I wonder why that's true. Right? And you try to figure it out.
2: Right, yeah, okay.
1: This is something, so, so what was, like, what was missing in the, in the old version? I just want to make sure we're on the same base here. What was missing in the old version? What made the old version unfun?
0: A backgammon? Yeah. Well, what's unfun about it is that, like, you're flying blind, right? Like, you're yes. making these decisions that are really, really complex, because you're talking about the probabilistic outcomes combining over the course of many, many turns. And, like, there's some fun in that, but You have no way of evaluating whether you were making a good move. Because, like, yeah, he happened to hit you, right? Like, you actually ended up scoring a bunch of points there. But did you make the right decision? Why was the right decision the right decision? How do I improve? Right? And, like, for the longest time, backgammon players, like, would debate. And they'd even write a book or two. I read a book about it when I was young. But they wouldn't know. They have no idea. Like, we talk about, like, Will used to be the best. At least, like by some of the commentators, talk player in the world where he would like write programs to sort of let him play against himself and like see how positions would evolve. And they talk about like they go back to his old matches. And they say he was playing at like a three-five skill level, where like it's the error rate basically of how how many points they lose per whatever. And like they were just in awe that like he played like you know not expert level now, but like not that far off from current reason- expert level before the box showed up. Or that he was able to suss out like stuff before everyone else figured it out, and Beckham and play like it took a quantum leap when they figured when the, when the bots showed up, and so did Go, right? Like, right. and and to me, like they you know there was all this talk about well Go just die, right? Now that everybody can despair that like Alpha Go and then Alpha Zero the best things in the world you can never beat them, and it turns out no, with an AI to tell you exactly what the value of every possible move is and, like, show you how to play better. Like, and our opportunity to sort of pursue perfection, pursue elegance to see the game play in its full glory in some sense. Like, the game just got so much better on every level. And suddenly everybody wants to go for it.
1: Yeah, to me, this is like this entire discussion we've had up to this point. Maybe not the first question, although you can make a case for it is a is a question of uh learning curves right it's basically about what is the kind of compass that is pointing us to to getting better at each point in the skill level and uh i don't remember who this was this was someone back in the day who was quite famous in competitive programming who was basically saying like okay um learning is like jumping over a series of of like pits right and and every every time the pit gets larger and you kind of want these pits to get incrementally larger so that you can you can get better and you can know how to get better you can kind of see the other side at each time you don't want there to be just like an enormous increase in the difficulty you don't want like a difficulty spike in the middle right and, and to me like what you're seeing with this is that like all of these kind of all of these kind of combinatorial var- variables become like discrete variables or become like continuous variables even uh, and it, it just becomes like a much like just aesthetically beautiful way of learning to me.
0: Yeah. I always want to play against people who are better than me, right? Anything. Yeah. Because it's more interesting and you learn so much more. And it's a challenge. What you don't want, obviously is somebody who will just crush you under the foot <laughs> yeah. every time and you won't even know what happened and you won't be able to learn from it. And so the AI is this perfect combination of, you get somebody who could curb stomp you explaining exactly the right way to curb stomp someone in any situation from both sides, but you still get to play games against things that are calibrated to your skill level, right? Whether they're, they're humans or other AIs that have had their skill turned way down. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. And then I don't think that every game you want to like have the spoiler, right? It's an important sense. Mm, yes. And so like the big contrast between a game like go or chess, where I do think there's like some joy in figuring this out for yourself, but that like mostly there are games where you just want to get better. And then there are other games where you want to spend a significant amount of time just figuring it out for yourself and then maybe exploring it with a friend. And then only like after you've gotten your fill of that, do you maybe open the floodgates and start reading stuff online and figuring out like, okay, here's the right way to play Aspire. Yeah, like I think it, like,
1: yeah, yeah. I think the thing with something like Magic or any kind of deck building game is that it's like it's uh, it's compositional rather than a task of sheer optimization, right? Like obviously there's optimization going on, but it's like here are the big ideas I want to be looking at and and uh, interacting with as opposed to like okay, here here are the moves for any given position, right? It,
0: Yeah, I think a a huge thing in AI right now is like the question of data versus compute, right?
1: Mm, Yes,
2: yes.
0: Right. And so Magic is a game where you're given very little data to work with, right? The, The space of possibilities is so huge. The hidden information is beyond what it is in any other genre of game. And so I have no idea how to train an AI to be actively good at magic, right? Like, this seems like a much, much harder problem than a world-class goer chess player. Uh, the game that sort of, I've, I said for a while, like, first solve Stratego, and then once you've solved Stratego, solve Magic Gathering. And then I will freak out
2: <laughs>
0: in a very different way. And they did solve Stratego, by the way, a few months ago.
2: Oh, and interesting.
0: I pointed it out. It was a very surprising to. Like, it fell faster than I expected relative to other things that might have fallen, like in order. Uh, I'm not sure that it's playing perfectly. We're talking possible that like strategic players, as human strategic players, are just not very good. And so, yeah, like that was my got, that
1: was my intuition as well.
0: Yeah, and also that they didn't crush them. It just was like able to play at a at the highest level, which of course we always assume. Oh, that means that like three months later, when they keep working on it, it's just going to crush every human. You'll never win a game. But I'm not sure that's true because I think it's very possible if there's a plateau of how good a technique can be in some sense. Like I think that like the poker uh, programs that claim to have beaten poker, right? Like there's a highly plausible world in which like, okay, this is playing perfect Nash equilibrium such that if everybody else is up against nothing but Nash players or up against one Nash player, they can't profitably diverge much from what you're doing. And therefore, like because they're just more exact in some sense, and more willing to make some things that players humans haven't figured out yet that are counterintuitive, they have a slight edge on the humans in the situation. And so you just have to like trust them. But what they're really not good at is being able to take advantage of a human properly, which is the real art of poker.
1: In some important right, sense. it's like it's like this kind of. Uh, win more or like this kind of, well, it's not quite like that in poker, right? It's like, right? There is no win more. Yeah, it's in like poker. expectation, it is,
0: right? Yeah. Right. Because like win more is a, is a dangerous thing in a game like magic where like yeah. you only either win or you lose. But in poker, win more is exactly what you want to do, right? Like you want yeah, to exactly. minimize your losses and maximize your gains. It's not about how often you end up ahead. And so as I understand it, the AI in poker is still going to do a much worse job of parting a sucker from their money than a top human. Even though when the human and the AI get heads up, the AI is going to be slightly, slightly better, right? Like, or if there was nothing but professionals at the table and an AI, the AI might be slightly better. But also I'm not sure, like the AI might actually like not respond to dynamics quite as well as the AI could because that gets more complicated. I just haven't seen the literature on that. Uh, I know they were trying to beat like ring games, not just heads up uh it gets more complicated, right? Because the system they used to beat heads up requires that the game sort of be compact in an important way. And so Tritigo, I was thinking like, okay, so humans, you know, are doing something and the AI is doing something, but it wouldn't surprise me if that strategy kind of did top out at like, I'm doing vaguely reasonable things and Tritigo isn't actually that strategic. <laughs> <the whole> <laughs> yeah. Like everything's no, tactics. I can it's definitely all, see that. Yeah. It's like, it's all tactics. So like, the reason why I said Tertigo was going to be the one that I wanted to see was because I wanted to see a games of hidden information where that hidden information was the result of player choice. Right? Mm, this
2: is yes. a very
0: di- like, like, I am trying to figure out what you're thinking based on what I know. And, like, your moves reveal probabilistically, like, what you might be up to and what kind of player you are and what type of thing you might be doing. And my guess is that what's going on is the AI got very good at some, like, reasonable tactics and is doing a good job of them but like the deep things in the game it might not even be latching to them at all it's an important sense right and so like you can still be very good at strategico without doing that but you know you're not that close to the platonic strategico player right you're actually mm. not that and it's going to get this is potentially very difficult to progress right and like it also just seems like a coincidence if they're not as good as humans right like are we going to see the next paper where it's like, no, we're just the number one on Tritigo by far? Now, I don't know. But in Magic, you know, I'd like to see it be competent, right, even. Like, to see it go into a, a draft and draft Magic cards and then play in the, the regular portion of the draft with its deck against other people's decks and, like, actually do things on the level of a good human who is, like, experienced in that format. And i especially like to see it do it without training data, right? Where you just get the cards.
1: Oh, yeah, that would be even more interesting. Because
0: that's how they trained in chess and go, right? They didn't give you any human games. So the question is, right. you know, one shot where the AI gets to play against itself and draft against itself and it knows the distributions of the cards in the booster packs and it knows how the rules work in some sense, meaning it's allowed to play as many games as it wants and see what happens, right? I don't think you actually probably wouldn't right, but- even teach a, 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 one of these models what the rules were manually. You would just say, okay, the the cards are weird. They have effects. Learn. Right?
1: <laughs> yeah, but what's interesting here is that, like, it's what you were talking about with exploitation before, right? Is it actually possible to play the best in a given situation without knowing the metagame, right? Without knowing, like, what, what people are inclined to do. Right? I, I think that that's actually a very important factor, especially in the draft,
2: right?
0: And the answer is just flat out no, right? If you are yeah. drafting, like, if you are drafting... And you do not know what other people's tendencies in the draft are. Even if you understand perfectly what the format's cards are capable of and what what decks are better than what other decks, in the end, you won't know how to read the signals that are being sent to you. You won't know how to anticipate what signals other people will get from you sending packs to them. So you will do a bad job of figuring out what options are available to you And also you will do a bad job of knowing which cards are at a premium and therefore you have to take them early if you want to make sure you have them and what cards you can sort of count on to come later. And so, yeah, just first principles. You can be good, but to be great at draft, to compete at the highest level, you have to know how everyone else is approaching the format and thinking about it or you will be crushed by the better players. It's a big difference.
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah, like, it, it's kind of like, do you know uh, Nassim Taleb's story of, like, Fat Tony? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it's like that, right? There are people who play, like, statistically optimally, and that, there's, like, the dude who, who, like, doesn't have a college education, who runs, like, a car dealership, and is, like, really good at making making a ton of money off that car dealership. And maybe he can't, like, formally justify all the stuff he's doing, but, like, he knows his shit, and then there are, like, the results that, the the payoff, like, from that.
0: Right. And like if all you're doing is doing something that's like in some sense statistically correct, your payoff is usually not as impressive because other people can also do statistics. Mm -hmm. So so even if you're a little better than them, like your edge is often quite small. So unless you can just do a ton of transactions on that basis and you're never wrong, it's often very tricky. So like when I worked as a trader, I worked at a very human trading firm where we got a lot of our edge by thinking about problems as humans as opposed to just optimizing algorithms to be slightly, slightly better, where we found there wasn't as much advantage. And so like to me, the story of Fat Tony is, in fact, that he looked at these people who claimed they were doing all of this amazing statistical stuff and they had it all figured out, and he was just like, bullshit.
2: <laughs>
0: right? He just like, yeah. this doesn't make any sense. I don't need to know how your models work. All I know is you're asking for disaster and at some point disaster will come and I'm going to be ready for you and then he made a ton more money than he ever made as a car dealer hmm. right not that he didn't succeed as a car dealer but that like being a car dealer taught him that when you go crazy and out of line you know you take big risks eventually your car is going to crash
1: yeah I mean, maybe some people have been some maybe some listeners, some new listeners have been wondering why we've been talking for 30 minutes about uh about card games, but I think this just ties in so much to uh what we're doing. I've had Robin Hanson on the show. I've had I mean, I will have other like very famous economists on the show, both pop economists and like academic economists. Uh next season's going to be great, guys. But like I think what we're looking at here is that we're looking at like a set of rules that are like, okay, there's like the set of rules that everyone claims there are. And then there are like the social signals, which are like the actual rules. And to me, at least there, there are just so many parallels to kind of sussing out uh, what is true uh, in these kind of, quite frankly, like, um, lower stakes environments, right, compared to, especially what you're, a lot of the things that you're talking about now, and that's not to, like, denigrate it in any way, like, it's still a very great environment, but, like, uh, let's talk about COVID, right, let's talk about COVID projections, let's talk about, like, how to, how you've gone about deciphering these things, and deciphering, like, incredibly high stakes things in the real world. Yeah. So in general, I, like, what is your what is your methodology to to uh, you've made a lot of quite accurate COVID proje- projections and forecasts, and especially I think you've been better not just in the kind of statistical understanding and the kind of understanding of basically factual matters, but the understanding of how like people will react and that kind of like psychology behind it. So like, what's what's been your approach to this?
0: Yeah. So I would say. My approach has been to try to solve the problem at all, <laughs> and I I think that may sound glib, but I think it's right.
2: It definitely so it, is.
0: <laughs> yeah. So in the sense that, like, I don't see, other, I I just don't see other people who are actually trying to say, okay, we have to think about what physical things are going on and how they likely work, and how they interplay with each other, but also how people plausibly react to these things and then compare your predictions and your observations and your models to what you have observed in the past and what you observe as you go forward. And then try to just improve the model. Right. I talk about my model often. Right. And this is a, a catch all term for how I think people work and how I think the physical world works and how COVID functions. And like all of these things put together are all aspects of my model. Right? And you should have a model of how you think the world works and cause and effect and how to project out from a given situation. And then continuously you should try to improve it. And I generally just didn't see other people out there making predictions, updating whether they were right or wrong, like trying to figure all this stuff out, like trying to look at it from a bunch of different angles. Like I think that I do have the advantage of sort of just being quicker. And better at tying things together at processing and modeling information and systems. And I have a lot of different, uh, what Tyler Cohen calls cultural codes to draw from right? Right. a lot of different perspectives. I can throw at a different problem. And I think that helps a lot. Uh, but also just a, a willingness to be like, okay, you just got to figure this out. I actually care about figuring this out. Let's just, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> right. Cause there's so many times in the COVID pandemic there have been situations where like we're all surprised and like weird stuff keeps happening and we have to roll for the punches. And also, yeah. like, you know, you know, like, also like when you think about like, I've made a bunch of very good predictions, but I've also made a bunch of predictions that were wrong. In some cases, yeah, very fair. wrong. And, you know, I, I think I put my track record up against pretty much anyone's because nobody has made a consistently set of good, strong, successful predictions. Uh, but you know, it's important that like, I've gotten a a bunch of stuff wrong and i look back on how I got that stuff wrong and mostly I sort of understand, okay, I know why I got that wrong in that situation and I'm not particularly mad at my thought process at the time, but I wouldn't make that same mistake again.
1: Right. And so what are your kind of, and of course this is going to be a little bit reductionist, but it's a, it's kind of a starting point. Like what are three kind of one sentence principles that you would say are the most important to making good predictions? Uh, you can, you can answer this for COVID or just in general.
0: Uh, so I would start off with a procedural thing in general, rather than specifically for making a certain prediction, which is deliberate practice. Right. Right? I think that's the most important thing. The most important thing is you try to predict things. You make probabilistic predictions. You try to figure out what you think would surprise. You ask yourself what would be surprising to me and why and how surprising and how likely things are. You try to put numerical predictions towards things. You then see what happens. You then you know you also try to think. Okay, I think there's an X percent chance this is this is true before I investigate. You. You try to be a gambler, you try to like make, you know, markets on future events in whatever role of life that you like find interesting and can get people to do this with you ideally because you want at least one person with you and you just mm-hmm. train yourself to get good at this stuff and to ask yourself every time, okay, what did I do right? What did I do wrong? You know, what, my model was incorrect that we learned about this. You know, did I get unlucky? to have this be wrong or was this always wrong? Or was I like unlucky to be in a bad epistemic state, but this is always going to be wrong. And I have to update my epistemic state. Right. These are all different things with different implications. So that would be my number one for sure.
1: Yeah. And I would actually completely second that. Uh, What's your, what's your number two and
2: three? (laughs)
0: Yeah. I'm thinking.
2: Yeah. Take
1: your time.
0: Yeah. So I think my number two would be don't assume competence.
2: Yes.
0: (laughs) Right? Like people, I think, got into a lot of trouble by assuming that things would work the way they would in a more adequate civilization in a world in which more people were better at their jobs, in a world in which more people cared about being more effective at their jobs and on the <laughs> supposed end result of their jobs. And that we were all sort of in this together and knew that, and were doing things in good faith for good reasons. And their motive and, and that people's, you know, and similarly, like part of that is just like, don't assume people's motives are to actually do their jobs and solve their problems.
2: Oh right? yeah. Like,
0: Cause all of this, Causes really, really bad predictions. Right? Like, I think this is one of the biggest reasons why people just fall flat on their face. Which they, I think, often do. So I think that's just very straightforward. And, you know, if you don't understand that, like, like, this is, this is, this is the main, one of the main ways I made mistakes early on was I assumed too much competence. (laughs) Right? I assumed that people were not as hyper competent as people like to think they are but still way more competent than they actually functionally are and so it took me at least a year before i felt like looking back i was in a plausible place for how incompetent are these people going to be and like similarly like that also means you know everything will take longer than you think if a human has to do it it depends on a process if people have to go about implementing something Getting something built, getting something shipped, getting something distributed, getting something approved, coordinating, like, there's always more delays than you think there are. And, you know, it's not just engineers that you should always just assume that they're going to take at least double the time that they told you, no matter how many times they think they doubled. It's everything. And so if we broadly consider that to be, like, number two, uh... Number three is exponentials are real. Maybe like just this, a lot of the big predictions that I got right or that I got less wrong than other people, right? Like even when I got them wrong, hmm. like I was like charting out the possibilities in the right space and thinking about the problem much better. Like with the, uh, with the alpha strain, like right? I predicted things that didn't happen were likely to happen. Although not super likely to happen. I don't actually think the predictions were that overconfident, even in hindsight. But the key thing is that I correctly said this is going to happen, this thing is going to come, it is going to take over, and it is going to cause a surge, and then we do have to figure out what to do about it and what's likely to happen. And this was just foreseeable with 90-90% probability, well before anybody was admitting it to it. In the same way, in February of 2020 or even January of 2020. You know, if you were paying attention, you knew with certainty that COVID was coming, right? There was no way that we were going to take action to stop COVID, right? You either assumed too much confidence or weren't actually believing in exponentials, right? There was no other third possibility, really, like long before regular people admitted it. And then, you know, same thing with Delta, same thing with Omicron, right? When I did Omicron and I got it more or less correct, That was mostly me literally just trusting exponentials to actually be real. Right. And then assuming people would react incompetently and doing the math.
1: Right. And I think that one of the things that uh, has been kind of beat into me either by coronavirus or by other issues in the last few years is that people will not learn from things that happened like three months ago. They just won't. Like, there, there's, like, the assumption that, like, people are going to, like, start off incompetent, which I think I already had. And then there's, like, there's, like, the assumption that people will not learn to, like, do the same thing that they just did in reaction to, like, a very similar problem. And that is something that I think comes, like, very counterintuitive to me. But, like, you just have to, like, look at real life. You have to, like, you have to engage in some, like, fat Tonyism, right? And realize that this is, like, this is just kind of how things work.
0: Right. You would have, like my previous model was something like they will fight the last war and that's bad, right? Like the the, mm. army will, the army will remember the last time they thought and think that that's how war works. But it's way worse than that, right? Armies are actually at least can fight the last war reasonably often. Most people, yeah, they don't learn anywhere near as much as you'd think. They don't update on the experiences, even pretty narrowly and directly. And part of that is understanding that like lack of the information that they just got might not have been their problem. It's an important mm. sense, right? Like the reason why you are responding in what looks to us like an incompetent way is not that you didn't know necessarily.
2: Right. Exactly. This is something. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, this is something that I think is one of the core points on the show. This is something that I've been beating in the last few episodes especially is everything that stays is good at something. It is at least good at staying and if it sucks at everything you think it's supposed to do, maybe it doesn't do the things you're supposed you think it's supposed to do. Right? Like the the CDC like screwing up and just like repeating the cycle of just both this kind of like I don't want to overuse the term anarcho-tyranny, but, like, it's about, right, like, this combination of not actually solving the problem and doing a lot of extraneous damage while also not solving the problem. It's, like, and and just repeating the same thing, right? Just, like, doing, like, doing the same thing in the same way. It's, like, okay, yeah, this doesn't do what you think it's supposed to do. This does, this is actually optimizing for something very, very different.
0: Right, and, like, to use a In the news example from the day that we're recording this, I learned this morning, and I put it in my weekly post, that the CDC is refusing to release specifications for doing wastewater detection for polio. Oh, no. They are not letting other people (laughs) run tests for a potential pandemic. Oh, yes. And you would think... That right now, right after not just not just COVID but monkeypox, where like the the scourge of childhood, polio, is on the verge of a comeback because we have so botched the ability to convince people to get vaccinated for polio. Right, this has been going on for years. It's not just a like 2020, and then suddenly we had a problem. Right, because like it's only been like a year and a half of this problem, and yet like somehow half the kids are not vaccinated. And we can do math. It had to have started long before. And so yeah, we have polio returning to New York and like the CDC is like, we don't want you to test for wastewater. We want to be the ones who do all the tests. And like, could you think of a, you had one job and you screwed it up from the pandemic bigger than telling other people not to test. Not, yeah,
1: to know you what know. Was going yeah. on. And, like, the CDC banning tests, like, this is not the first time this happened, right? Uh, I, I'm sure you're aware of the CDC banning banning COVID tests and uh, mandating that the only COVID oh, yeah. test that we're allowed to use is that is the one that uh, doesn't work. Um, do you want to tell the story? I can also tell the story if you want. I mean,
0: you just did tell the story. It was early in the pandemic. The yeah. CDC said, the CDC and the FDA were like, you can't test, we will send you We will send government people with guns if necessary to stop you from using the equipment you have to find out if somebody has COVID. And a lot of the early detection of COVID we have, it's people just literally refuse to listen to this and test it against their specific instructions. Hashtag heroes. (laughs) But the CDC literally is like, if you want to test, you have to send your test down to Atlanta. We will do the testing. And they had extremely limited supply of testing, and also it didn't work.
1: Yeah, all the all the false positives. So what, what you essentially have, right, is you have a thing that is critiquable from basically literally any angle. Uh, you can be literally anyone. You can want more government control. You can want less government control. You can want... Uh, more like a reinforcement of the current institutions. You can want a disenforcement of the current institutions. No matter what, this was a failure. And you know what? We're going to do it again. It was such a failure, such a magnificent failure. We're going to do the exact same thing.
0: The good news on this one is that polio has been around for a very long time. And in response to the note that the CDC was not playing ball, someone else responded with, oh, the CDC might not want to tell you, but I just know the answer. Here's the instructions. Right? Like here, are all yeah. the, here are the exact genetic sequences you check for because it's polio for yeah. a very long time. This is not a secret. And like you don't have to let this stop you if you don't want to. It's fine. And so, right. you know, in some sense, all is well that ends well assuming people use it. But yeah, we just – it's not that the CDC doesn't know that not letting people test will result in people not being tested and that people not being tested – results in us not knowing what's going on and being in much worse of a position to deal with the pandemic. That's not the problem. The problem is that the CDC knows this but cares about its authority. It cares about being the one that runs the tests more than it cares about this other stuff. And we know this because it keeps doing this.
1: Right. So Why does it care about, what's your analysis on this? Why does it care about uh, running all the tests, right? Why why does it care about having a monopoly?
0: They're bureaucrats fighting for their turf. I don't think this is complicated, right? Like they are people who think that everything must be done their way or the highway. They don't want the president set that other people can just, one does not simply run tests for medical conditions, (laughs) right? Like there are rules. They think that it's their job. They think that if someone else does the test and it goes wrong, they'll be blamed. And if someone else does the test and it goes right, they won't get the credit. So why should they let someone else have a test?
1: Mm, and you have this idea. I think I heard you speak on it on another podcast. That was the first time I heard you, uh, heard you say this, this idea of like moral mazes, right? Which I think is pretty close to something that I've talked about on the podcast as well. Uh, so do you want to, do you want to go into that idea and how it relates to uh, the CDC?
0: Right. I mean, this is the next level beyond that, right? This is the this is the level of we want to do this because it won't work, because it will actually make things worse. So the idea here is mm. suppose you are in the bureaucracy of the CDC, right? You rose up inside the bureaucracy of the CDC by demonstrating that what you cared about was being the type of person who other people would help rise up for the bureaucracy of the CDC and who would successfully rise up for the pro- bureaucracy of the CDC. Now, if you actually cared about disease control, this might be a problem because <laughs> you might make a choice to control disease that did not benefit the CDC. Right? So much better if you don't care about disease control, that you care about your own career, that you care about, you know, advancing the careers of others in the agency you care about advancing their own careers. And most importantly, you must make it clear that you don't care about disease control on this level and that you won't betray your boss When your boss does something that's bad for disease control in order to promote their career or whatever it is under this hypothesis. So what you do is not only do you not care about disease control when it comes to decisions, but when in doubt, and this is the motive ambiguity principle that is the extension of it, is that like you train yourself – both you train yourself to be someone who doesn't care about these things, who only cares about the things that people want you to care about and that it's allied with the other people who also don't care, but you actively reverse it, right? Mm. It becomes an immoral, what I call an immoral maze. And you say, well, which of these things is worse for disease control? And normally we're talking about like something much less high stakes, right? Or So like here it sounds kind of really provocative. We're talking about people like intentionally letting people get sick or making more people sick. And normally it's just something more pedestrian. But whatever it is, that would be good in some sense, right? Whatever would be the moral better thing to do. Well, what you want to do is the opposite because nobody actually thinks that you would betray your boss in order to make sure that we did not control disease, right? Nobody is that crazy. But that means that the more you actively avoid controlling disease, the more everybody knows they can trust you. Because I know when the chips are down, you're not actually going to prioritize disease non-control over other things. That's crazy talk. (laughs) You're still, when the stakes get high and the chips are down, more likely to actually control disease because you are, in fact, a human being, right? Like, or so other people should model. So it all gets very convoluted and complicated, but basically the core story is If you want to succeed climbing a bureaucracy, you do this by forming an implicit conspiracy and alliance with all the other people who are determined to climb the bureaucracy. And the way that you identify each other is by self-modifying such that you only care about the things that make you climb the bureaucracy, which both makes you do the things that help you climb the bureaucracy and helps other, and gets other people to help you climb the bureaucracy.
1: Right. So one way this, this crosses, this lines up exactly with with what I've been talking about on the show is that it's actually like, it's not really implicit. It kind of, it's kind of explicit. You just have to know, like, you just have to know what's going on. Right. So this is what I call narrative hedging. Right. So you often hear the story, which is like, this thing is not happening. And if it is, it's not that bad. And if it, if it isn't, then it's someone else's fault. And if it's not, then it was inevitable. Right? This is the true cl- with clown coronavirus.
0: Made, yeah, the clown makeup meme, I believe, is the way that we refer to that these days,
1: right? Oh yeah. I, I actually never drew that to the uh to the to the clown thing. I think there's like <laughs> there's like a lot of, of ways to use that. But yeah, that actually fits perfectly. That that's great. That's excellent. I'm gonna I'm gonna use that now. Um but you see this I think most famously uh Teleb talks about this as well with a with a great financial Crisis uh or with uh with waves of financial crises it's like oh growth is inevitable oh it's uh we've got gotten rid of volatility oh you know it's just secular stagnation there's no hope now right it's like it's like the same story. It's it's basically the same story, but every time we need a different scapegoat, or every time we need a different kind of motive, a motive passing the blame. It's like you know what's the common factor here, right? It's actually the people running the show, and it's the same deal with COVID. It's the same deal. I think we'll talk about this later, probably with a lot of political factors, right? It's like this this like recurrent scapegoating process, which I find like very interesting. So you just look at, like, who is advanced, it's, like, the people who are promoting that, like, next stage of the scapegoating process, right? It's, like, not, it's not so subtle.
0: Right. But the thing that I think that you're getting wrong there, and I think it's very important, is that you are paying it's explicit. And I think that's importantly wrong. So, one of the things that is under attack by these processes, by these conspiracies, is the ability to be explicit. Being explicit is a weakness, it is a vulnerability, it is bad, right? When you are engaging in a conspiracy, the best conspiracies are ones that do not have to be explicit, right? Like, always remember, like, you know, Barksdale, right? Like, you're taking notes on a criminal conspiracy?
2: <laughs> and
0: the whole idea is, you know, Donald Trump was always very good at this, you know, it would be, the, the, the sort of mafiosa is talk, you know, it would be good, If somebody convinced him to sign the development deal. Yeah. What does that mean? I don't know. But it's a true statement. It would be good for Donald Trump if somebody were to sign that development deal. What does his lawyer go out and do? Well, that's really none of our business. Right? Like, does he bribe someone? Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) You know, does Trump even know? He doesn't want to know. Right? And like, this is. Not specifically to target Trump, it's to to say this is a, just a mode of being that is inherent in all of this, right? So the idea is that like, there isn't a smoke-filled room where these people conspire and say, okay, we're ready for step two of the clown makeup. And now we say that like, we've controlled volatility. That never happens, right? It's not, they wouldn't even think to do that. It's not that it's illegal, right? It's not that, it's just not their, not their way of being. If somebody said, Let's explicitly decide what to do and then coordinate. They'd be like, oh, this person explicitly coordinates. This person like believes there is a pl- should have a plan and that like things are better and other things are worse. And that's not the type of person I can work with. This would go very badly for them.
1: Oh, so. okay. I-, I see the I see the difference now. I think I'm much closer to, to you than than I came off because yeah. When I mean explicit, I don't mean like, oh, we're going to crash the market again, right? That's not the statement I mean. I mean, there's kind of like this flag that's put up, right? There's this flag that's put up, which is like, we've gotten rid of volatility. And then like the explicit coordination is like people who say we've gotten rid of volatility are our friends and we're going to promote those people. It's not like we're going to promote those people who are causing another market crash, right? But if you just look at like, if you just look at the kind of... Uh, both the academic circuit, legacy media, right, New York Times, that kind of stuff, right? The status that is being distributed is explicitly being distributed towards people who go along with these kind of uh, narrative hedges, right? It's just not, it's just not, ex- the part that's implicit, right, is that, like, this is going to crash the market, which, like, people people who are already doing the kind of, like, factual analysis, they're like, guys, this is going to crash the market, <laughs> right? But, um so, like, What I'm saying is that, like, there is an explicit coordination around a flag. There's an implicit, there's an implicit tie between that flag and, like, the crash and, like, the destruction that happens.
0: Does that make sense? Right. I mean, I would say there's an implicit coordination around a flag. Okay. Like, it was just literally that, like, in this specific example, what's going on is that, like, because everyone else is saying they've conquered volatility, it is to your advantage to also say you've conquered volatility and you believe other people have conquered volatility.
2: Right, exactly. For various
0: coordination reasons. And nobody, again, like, is it explicit? I think most importantly, no, in my mind, right? I, I think of it as basically no. I think that, but I, I understand.
1: Yeah, I think it's like just a difference behavior. in like your sliding scale of like, okay, what are you going to ca- categorize as implicit? What are you going to categorize as explicit?
0: Right. But and I, I think, think like
1: yeah, yeah. I understand where you're coming from now. You understand where I'm coming from now. Like, yeah, yeah. It, but like, I, I, we I, kind I, of agree on what's yeah. happening.
0: And the reason why the reason why I'm so persnickety about this is because I think there's a huge value in actual explicitness, right? That, like, mm, yes, that it's That's very interesting. very important to the world. That we plant the flag of explicitness and saying things explicitly. Right. Like, and so, you know, a lot of what I am able to do is say the thing out loud, right. To just explicitly say the thing that I want to say and find ways to explicitly say the thing that I want to say. And the way that I am able to like learn and model and communicate is because I'm able to say things explicitly. And in fact, more and more people are losing this ability in more and more contexts. And this is a real problem. And this is also like in some ways my disagreement with some other people who like try to say things as not explicitly as possible in many cases uh, for various reasons. And then there are people who are like Robin Hanson, who are just explicitly saying absolutely everything.
2: Mm, I really yeah, I love appreciate
1: that. He's been on the show before. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so what are some examples you're talking about? People losing the ability to, uh, to do this. And I think that's a pretty strong claim. So like, what are, what are some examples of this happening? Of people losing the ability to talk about things explicitly.
0: Well, I'm not going to like start calling
1: out the names of people, right? In these situations, so I wasn't really looking for like people. I was looking for right. like issues. Like, what are things that people can no longer talk about explicitly? Is is what I mean to ask. Right, you so don't like, have to call out anyone. So, like, like,
0: the moral mazes framework, right? Like, is primarily concerned with promotion, hiring, and promotion, and career advancement in alliances, and like in general, like these things operate increasingly on implicit bases as you get more – as, as, as what I call maze levels rise and these mm. levels well are generally rising. But like anybody who has engaged in a hiring or promotional process these days learns that it would be the advice of your lawyers not to be too explicit about many of the things that you're considering
1: right, so like can can we like get an example of this right just for for the audience so
0: this like, is a situation in which because I am potentially involved in hiring, me stating some of the things I might consider that I don't explicitly consider might actually be in and of itself too explicit,
1: yeah, okay, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna give an example for the audience, which I think is the most uh, most obvious example. I'm not sure if you you would agree with this or if you even like looked into this a lot, but um. Uh, I will go there and I will talk about uh, I will talk about affirmative action. And the thing that always happens with affirmative action is that you're not allowed to say quotas, but everything that you do and even most of what you say basically lines up with you choosing quotas. right? It's like you have to get to this number, no matter what, right? your your job is on the line unless you get to this number. Uh, are we using quotas? Why the fuck are you asking that question? Right? Don't ask that question. Delete this message right now. And in fact, you never ask this question. And if you do, you're fired. Right, there's,
0: right. There's, a, there's a wide range of questions surrounding hiring that you are absolutely not allowed to ask and facts that you are not allowed to consider. And many of them quite obviously impact the bottom line of your business. Right? Yes, like, exactly. And sometimes you want to favor, you know, the thing that helps your business. Sometimes you want to favor. The thing that like brings your business into, compl- into compliance with some sort of statistic or otherwise gets you something ephemeral that you want. And so like it can cut both ways in many, in, in many situations, right? Sometimes, but like it's crazy to think that these things are not considerations for a large percentage of people who can, who, where they come up. Uh, but you know, there's a reason why none of employment considerations are ever written down if you can help it, right? Because there's nothing you could have said. Doesn't expose you. Like didn't you consider X? Didn't you not consider Y? Like did you can that you true?
1: Is is that true that like none of the consideration I don't know. I, I worked at a company that has pretty pretty explicit considerations, but it's also like a tech startup. Yeah. Right? There,
0: there are so, some, I- yeah so tech startups are in this strange place where it is expected for you to kind of just ignore the rules.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: And it's understood that moving fast and breaking things means there will be a mess that you have to clean up later and that you might, in fact, be vulnerable to a lot of uh, legal messes or accounting nightmares or, you know, have people on your cap table that really shouldn't be there or any number of other bad things can happen to you. Right. But like the important thing is, like, if you're starting a social network. And the Winklevoss ones are suing you for quite a lot of money and you have to pay them. <laughs> this is not a problem right? This is, you did your job in some sense, right? You cheated mm, them fair and square, and now the bill has come due. But you wouldn't want to not cheat them so that, that lawsuit didn't happen at the end of the story. You want to get the story started.
2: Mm.
1: And so in these, in these immoral mazes, right? I think that what's interesting is there are kind of like moral oases, right? If we can use that term with this kind of like negative selection effect, they're actually just implicitly positive selection effects that go with people who are basically like dissidents or, or, or exiters in the kind of um, the kind of more crypto terminology. People are saying like, you know what, not only are we not going to do this, but we're going to actively try to poach like the top 10% pe- of people who also really don't want to do this. And we're all going to go and start something new. Right?
0: So be- do you see the so same easy.
1: thing happening, first of all?
0: I mean, that's your goal, right? Like if you are, yes. if you are doing the thing that I, we are describing, right? Like you want to, in some sense, be useless, right? Like you want to be unable to actually generate real value in some sense. Partly just not to be a threat, right? Like it makes people – like one of their favorite words is comfortable, right? You want to be comfortable. Mm, Yes. And like somebody who's actually going to care about the bottom line and make things happen, it makes you uncomfortable, right? Elon Musk will never be accused of making everybody comfortable.
1: (laughs) Certainly not. Right? And And I mean like that's a good thing, right?
0: (laughs) No, but it's a good thing. But there are contexts in which people will view it as a very bad thing. And – yeah, some amount of moderation. Sometimes you do want to make people somewhat comfortable and, like, the best founders take it too far. Like, There's no other way to be that kind of founder. But, yeah, absolutely. Like, you don't want the people who would be fully fitting in to be employee number one or a co-founder of your startup. That will go very badly. And so you have to walk this fine line between I want to find people who are disgruntled at Google or some other big place and convince them to join me. Or I want people who were so disgruntled, they were never at Google in the first place.
1: <laughs> yeah. So why I bring this up is like this is in my view, this is always going to be the starting point for anyone who wants to find a way out of the immoral maze. Right? This is always going to be a starting point for like how do we actually get how do we actually get competent, for example, like virus management. Right, you actually just go. You go outside. You form these kind of informal networks, and and this is what this is what starts the kind of uh, revolution in the cyclical sense. Right, the, right. the, the turning to, of the right. wheel.
0: Right, you have to fire the peacetime generals. You have yes. to <laughs> reform and re- reform and or replace the agency, and it's like at least management periodically. You don't have an option. It is not because like anybody involved is especially bad or blameworthy. It's because you just simply cannot have institutions that are around for decades or even centuries letting these dynamics play out without reset buttons and expect them to do things effectively. It just won't Actually, happen.
1: Actually that, that raises, that raises an interesting question, right? Which is that, I mean, I have, I have similar, analyses and i think something that's very notable about how we communicate them is that i'm not sure if you came to this initially or if this is something that you changed afterwards but you kind of lead with the moral aspect right it's it's literally called like moral or immoral mazes right where i i just i mean like this is kind of like the more more formal way of saying it is probably like less catchy right i just say selection mechanisms Right, so, so was that like a conscious choice to like start off with a moral aspect versus say like competence? Or was that like a consideration that you later included?
0: So there was originally a book called Moral Mazes, which I read, which introduced me to the concept. So I was using an existing concept with an existing term. And that front loaded the moral dilemmas that these people face that he, the author saw as, you know, moral dilemmas and moral mazes. And then I said, wait, no, the important thing they offer is missing is that they are not trying to find out what the right thing to do is. They're not confused (laughs) as to what the right thing to do is. They are trying to figure out what the wrong thing to do is, right? They are learning to do prefer the wrong thing actively. This is a very different dynamic. And it was important to notice that this was true. And they are selection effects, but they are much more than selection effects as well. I don't think that's a complete descriptor. And I say this, because you go in and when you leave, you're a different person, right? It's not just that like wow. we hire a hundred people and we find the 50 maziest people and we promote them. And then we find the 20 most mazy people and we promote them. Then we find the five most mazy people and then the CEO becomes the most mazy person we can find. It's that at every step of this process, we are training you to be more of this thing. We are giving you the incentive to modify yourself and your behaviors and your values such that you become more of this thing.
1: Okay, so this is actually, like, this is not a communication difference. This is an actual, like, level of analysis difference. Um, I think, I don't know, like, I don't think the malleability is zero, but I don't think malleability is, like, most of the I mean, now, now I'm, now I'm second-guessing this, right? I, this is something that I kind of want to hash out. Like, so what percentage would you say is, like, the people changing versus, like, the people, in, individuals changing? And what percentage would you say is selection effects, right, if you were just to break that down?
0: So it's a good question, And also the question that immediately comes to mind to respond to it is starting from when, right? If you you start, if you start from when they've already entered the company and accepted the job, I think it's reasonable to say that, you know, maybe the majority of it is clearly like baked in in some important sense, right? It's already they got there. Certainly by the time they get like their first two promotions or something and they're no longer if you if you if you advance to a a manager of managers, you've probably already done most of your modifying by that point, point. Uh, and then past that point, it's probably largely selection, is my guess. But keep in mind that like we are modifying them every step of the way, right? Like we are diffusing this throughout the country and the world, and. A lot of what they are – a lot of what these people are doing at their previous jobs, a lot of what people are doing at college, a lot of what these people are doing even before that at their internships, when they interview for jobs, when they're trained to interview for jobs, when they ask themselves how they're going to do their careers, when they talk to mentors for advice, all of this is largely a schema for getting people to do this thing or at least getting a subset of people to do this thing who can then become the managers.
2: Yeah. So my
1: observation would be that a lot of this kind of self-deception or duplicitousness or like willingness to like nod to social hints, despite any kind of morality or like competence, right. Or like analysis of the factual reality, like both anecdotally. And I think there's some data to back this up with, The agreeableness studies, some of the stuff that I've seen from Jonathan Haidt, I don't know, I I don't have a full file on this yet, but I do think there are a lot of just baked in psychological factors that predispose you towards um, the type of person who fits into an immoral maze and who just does the things versus the type of person who is is just going to be a dissident, right? Or who's going to like, who's not going to live like this. I think right.
0: there's, it, there's, there's some of that, but also the obvi- the question you should always ask is, how many eight-year-olds would react this way? How many people who haven't been exposed to that much of this conditioning, who are perfectly agreeable, who understand they need to get along in some situations, just not. Just fine, thank you. They're not stupid. Would, in fact have this aversion to engaging with physical reality and explicit reasoning, who would in fact? look for other people who were averse to like making things work and want to work with them because they were averse to making things work. Right. Like who would sort of strategize in this manner. And I would say that like, yeah, there's like a, a few percent maybe who are like psychopaths or something who like just don't care in that sense. But even they are different because those people care about the underlying results for their own sake. I
1: think like psychopaths aren't really the problem here. Not at all. I I think like, yeah.
0: But like, this is an important thing as well. Like, Mm. these people don't, okay. So this is, this is largely adaptation execution, right? Not maximization behavior, right? A lot of this is about going away from maximization behavior.
2: Yes, exactly.
0: If you you are doing this tactically in each situation, because it happens to benefit you, And you've thought about it carefully and you have like a grand matrix. You're not doing this thing. And also people can tell it's very, very hard to fake, which is, it's like maybe someone at my intelligence level who really wanted to, and was much more emotionally capable of it could pull it off. But like the vast majority of people like have no chance, right? I just it's just so much extra cognitive overhead that they couldn't just live normally while doing this at all. And so What's going on is they execute this not by not caring about physical things that don't affect them or that don't affect or that, you know, only affect some broader picture or whatever. They do this by learning not to care about anything, right? They learn to value this kind of ephemeral success. They learn to value the act of getting along and being part of this alliance and like doing the things that are right according to this schema. And they just don't care anymore about like their own physical lived experience or anticipated physical lived experience or those of the people around them. In the same way.
1: This seems like a really strong claim. So like, so like the people who are like banning COVID tests, right? They just don't care they just don't react in the same way you or I do if like a family member gets COVID, right? If an elderly family member gets COVID, they just don't re they just don't have the same kind of instinctive reaction to that. Is that the, is that the claim?
0: Well, so that's sort of a very, very extreme. It's directionally true. I don't think, I think your statement does go too far. Uh, I would okay, say So, I, so they I, care less. I, I think that they have, yes, they, they sort of, they don't have the same, like they don't, they don't laser focus in and just treat it as a physical thing purely to be dealt with as a physical thing. It's not they don't care that their wife or father or you know child is sick. It's not they don't mm. want them to be better. If it's that sort of like their brain just says, "Okay, what do people do when their family member is sick? Right? What is the, what is proper? What is the standard oh, that I do here?" Mm-hmm. And they go through these motions. Like keep in mind that the vast majority of healthcare, right, in our country in practice, is mostly about signaling that you care. It's Hensonian medicine, right? You talk to yes, Robin Yes, exactly. Yes,
1: exactly. We ta- I talked yeah. about this with Robin briefly, but like the main idea is like it's it's even in the name, right? It's it's not treatment; it's healthcare. You go to the doctor, or maybe not. I, I think my audience is actually extremely negatively selected for this. So it's probably not true about you, but um, the general population, right? Like random, like random, like Jim Smith, he's not going to the doctor to get treatment for a problem for the lowest price. He's going to find someone who cares. Right. And, and the optimization that's being done here, like it's not explicit, right? No one is, like you said, it's, it's mostly implicit is like the doctors that are most successful are the ones who like quote unquote care the most. And by care, we don't mean like does the most work, tries the hardest to cure people. It's the person who shows like the most symbols and the most signals of like quote unquote caring, right? That's what's actually happening here.
0: If anything, the rabbit hole goes deeper than that, right? And it's it's more about you want to show the people in your life that you made sure to find people who cared.
1: Oh, okay, that's interesting. I I did not get that interpretation from Hanson. Or is this somewhere, something where you're deviating from that?
0: I I think I am expanding upon it. I am emphasizing differently. I don't think we disagree. I think that, like, basically, there is great pressure. Like, you know, if your child is sick, you want everybody to know that you did everything you could. And that you found the right people who, like, you would never be blamed for trusting to handle the situation and that you did the things that you were advised to do, whatever that means to you in your social context. Hmm. And it's not simply about like the doctor reassuring you that they care, right. Or sending out the right signals that they are a authoritative doctor. It's, can I represent to other people these signals, right? Like it's all performative to a large extent, like not a hundred percent. Like you do care, for... but like in my I don't want to, just, I don't want to like sit here accusing people in the FDA of like not caring about treating their sick children, right? Like that's not a fair or reasonable thing to do. What I'm saying is that like somebody who has been subject to this modification process generally will be asking the wrong questions, right? They'll be asking about whether or not they have done the things that are expected and that avoid blame. And that reassure everybody that, like, everybody involved properly cares. And they will emphasize this a much greater percentage of their effort and optimization pressure and willingness to spend time and money than would somebody like, uh, you know, than, than would a normal, like, regular person who is, like, you know, making $50,000 a year and see somebody get sick. And that person would still do a lot less of this, make sure the person gets healthy than Robin Hansen would.
2: Yeah. Right?
1: And I don't know, like maybe you don't want to stick on the, the previous point so far, but I I think it's important. I think we should spend at least a little bit more time on it. So like, how would we, what's an example of how we would kind of try to separate the two, right? Like, people being just like susceptible to those signals versus like performing those signals for other people. I guess the latter actually, the, it, it, it fits in more with the kind of like sorting framework, right? With a kind of selection mechanism framework. Um, so if you, I have certainly well, noticed, like, are, are they even different, right? Or are they just like the same thing?
0: <laughs> I think they're different. Uh, I've noticed it in myself. Certainly. I've noticed in my right. wife talk about it very explicitly, Sometimes it's all. Sometimes, actually healthcare is even about representing to other doctors that you have done the thing you're supposed to do.
1: Oh, you yeah, certainly, this, right? This is like law.
0: <laughs> right, and then like you won't treat me until I show that the useless things that I know are useless have already been done. So mm-hmm. I have to have them done. Right, I have to have done it done by a reputable person in the right situation and I have to have them all documented. And like there's lots of that stuff going around. And that's the legal technical version but also to the other people in your life. Like you have to do this test because otherwise people will question why you didn't do it. And that's distinct from, because I'll always wonder because I didn't do it, whether I missed something and I'll feel bad versus people will look at me funny.
2: And like, oh, I see.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Right. And they can look the same from the outside. But if you talk to the person in a safe space, they can differentiate very well, which one was top of mind. And which one was driving the train, right? It's
1: important. Yeah, I, I think this is like the usefulness of examples, right? That's why I've been trying to go into this, right? Yeah, when you think about it on that level, yeah, definitely with like the procedure, with like the useless tests, especially, it's like, yeah, they 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 know what's up. They they know it's useless. They they're not pretending it's it, it's useful, right? They don't even care about this themselves, but. It right. is it is that kind of thing that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree at this point, my at least is, in that example. My
0: wife has had, you know, some health problems and she has seen some doctors to try and deal with them. And, you know, some of them relate to various pregnancies. And, you know, there is definitely a distinction between this is a thing that we're doing because it will actually solve the problem. This is the thing we are doing because it will satisfy doctors so that maybe we will be able to solve the problem or they will just give us normal, regular medical treatment that they are like refusing to give us unless we cooperate which is the thing that happens. There's the thing where like, if we didn't do this, we would worry that we hadn't done it. And there's a thing where it's like, well, you know, if we don't do this, how will we tell, you know, the in-laws or whatever it is that we didn't do that? What happens when they start asking questions and we just don't want to deal with that? You know, or other questions like that. And like we've strategized in situations about, okay, what are we actually worried about here? Why are we considering doing this or not doing this? Because to get the right answers, you have to consider all of this, right? It's not a mistake to think about your social context. It's a mistake to let it drive you without thinking about it. The difference.
1: Right? It doesn't matter. Mm. And so, like...
2: Hmm. Okay.
1: So, the other challenge that I have with thinking about it in this way, about basically this kind of well yeah it's almost kind of like the more i think about it the more the more it seems right because it almost seems like tautological right actually like to to me it, it is like more more like selection effects than not right because it's like the selection effect is that people who care about procedure uh who put procedure over everything else are selected for and so they're more likely to care about procedure just in their ordinary lives that seems right to me what, what's like more challenging to me is that like this is actually like modifying people, right? This is actually like okay, so we can go back to that. You can go back to that test case before where I think it's a test case that agrees with you, which is like you put like a random person, you you just crown a random person CDC director, and you're like, do you ban COVID tests, right? Most people do not ban COVID tests. Um, but actually no, that that doesn't. That's not really a counter example either, right? Because it could be selection effects. So right? my, my my guess so, is if
0: you make a random person CDC director. And you say, what happens is your advisors all say, these are not authorized tests, we need to make sure they don't do these tests, and you don't trust yourself, and you end up listening to your advisors. Hmm. You can't, one cannot simply replace the head of the CDC with a normal person and get reasonable decisions, because the reasonable person will get controlled by the bureaucracy.
1: Yeah, that's fair. Um, but, you know, like, there's a way to do the slot experiment, right? Like is actually i don't know maybe there's not maybe there's there's not that, that's a good point I mean,
0: you can say um, what happens if you make me cdc director
1: in this situation well but but you're not like the average person right you you know right. a lot more about this right, right? but
0: the point the point being that like if the person doesn't understand that the bureaucracy is going to push them in these directions for the wrong reasons and doesn't have the strength and the faith in themselves and their ability to analyze the world and the situation, to defy the people who actually know a hell of a lot more than they do about many things that are important to the situation, then they won't be able to make their own decisions.
1: Right. I'm trying to kind of get at a different point here, right. which, is, which, which is that distinction between like, people being shifted or be, people being changed versus just a selection effect. Right, I'm still kind of dubious that there are significant changes in the right. way that people behave. That's the kind of thing I'm trying to work out with these test cases. Maybe the okay, ones so I have to do. So
0: like basic thought experiment, right? Yeah. If you observed in your company that some people wore blue shirts and some people wore green shirts. And then mysteriously, the people who get promoted always wore green shirts. Would you change what shirt you wear? Yes. Right. So if you see people who like, like if you see, if you think people who say hello, never get promoted, but people who say top of the morning to you get promoted, you start saying top of the morning.
1: Yes. Right. But I think that that changes like, I'm not sure that that applies the same way when those things have moral weight. Right. In fact, if I like, if, if I was in a, in a, and you can, t- well, like, suppose, question... Well, well,
0: suppose you were a vegetarian because you didn't believe in eating meat, to use a relatively clean example. But you notice that none of those vegetarians get promoted because they never get invited to the cool parties where they go to the Brazilian steakhouses, right? Like, this is where all the big meetings happen. And if they know that you're a vegetarian, they just won't invite you. And the vegetarians just don't get ahead at this company. And maybe you do start eating meat. Like, I don't particularly have a problem with eating meat, but, like, to make a example where someone does have a moral issue i don't think 100 percent of people make this change but i think a substantial number of people would make this change
1: okay okay maybe we're doing this at like a different level of analysis here right, right. so it, in in my level of analysis there are kind of like four people they're like they're like the two axes are like vegetarians non-vegetarians and then, like malleable vegetarians, and like non-malleable vegetarians, right? And my assertion, so basically, like the non-malleable vegetarians, they're the ones who are like, no, I really believe in this. Like, I'm not going to kill some animals just to get ahead, uh, just to get ahead and work. And then the malleable vegetarians, they're they're the ones who change. Like, I would my contention is that like there's just like a group of malleable people, like the people who are like going to conform in that way were, like, always going to conform in that way. The people who were not were always not, or, like, the vast majority of them, right? And maybe this is, like, a different level of analysis, right? But Right, so,
0: right, so each person sort of has a amount of pressure you'd have to put on them to get them to abandon this particular belief or this particular yeah. principle. And depending on how much they think it's wrong and how much they stand by their moral principles and how much they care about getting ahead, like, this person needs a ton of pressure and this person needs very little pressure. You know, obviously, if you threaten their job and it's hard to get a job these days and like you offer them promotions, I think this works for a remarkably large percentage of people. Uh, and I think it would work for clearly immoral actions the same way for a large number of people. Uh, but so sort of this idea of it all gets more complicated when the thing you are suggesting to people is that they become more malleable.
2: Hmm. That's, yeah, kind of that, that's level. interesting. Yeah.
0: That's kind mm. of what's going on, right? What they're saying is, you know, yes, I agree. People who yeah. aren't malleable don't get ahead of this company. You should be more malleable,
1: but is the thing that's happening just like pushing people up to their limit, or is this like, I mean, like, this is kind of difficult to answer without large quantities of psychological data that we just don't have, right? But like, I don't know what. Yeah, I don't. I don't actually. I, act I think answer. we have.
0: I mean, I, I think we have seen that you know radically different cultures produce consistently people within their own cultures in very different distributions. And I think yes. that like if you do not, if you adopt somebody and put them in the wrong, in a different context, they will mostly, you know, end up in the new context, not the old context, right? For obvious yeah.
1: reasons. Oh, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. The point that most people are like, most people are very malleable. I'm just not sure if they're, if what's happening is like people are being pushed up to their limit or if that limit is actually changed. Does that make sense?
0: Sure. I mean, I guess there's a like meta-malleability limit in some sense. Yeah. It's been set by their childhood and their genetic makeup and like whatever inherent nature they have and what, you know, depending on what psychological theory you have, what inference they developed or whatever you want to say. But like whatever, however they are, Right. Like some people, you offer them the world or you threaten them with torture or whatever, and they just stand by their principles and other people fold like cheap tents and everything in between. Uh, mm. But what we're doing is we're exerting, you know, a constant, you know, often in often invisible or very hard to see, like fish and water style pressure on people over the course of their entire lives to move in this direction in various ways to be this type of thing. And I think that results in a lot more of it than you would have if you had less of that. Uh, But yeah, I think it's fair to say there are some people who have no interest in playing the type of game and who will opt out of it. And what happens to those people, right? Like they either found their own companies, engage in small business or they End up what's called the on the line, right, in this yeah. they end up at the bottom level and they stay there because they're not interested in getting promoted, but on the bottom line there's enough interest in things working properly that you don't have to play this game if you don't want to. As long as you don't mind not getting promoted.
2: Yeah. Still so, room so for like
0: that. The pay- yeah.
1: Yeah. So the payoff to this, right, like why this discussion matters so much is it has a big impact on what solutions we pursue. I've kind of been more on the side of that we just need to sort people better. That, look, there are a lot of people, perhaps, like, a large majority of people, who are just a design constraint. If you're going to build something at, like, top levels of leadership, if you're going to build something that works and continues to work over many generations, you just have to say, like, look, there is... Uh, there is... um not necessarily something wrong with you, kind of like spiritually or as a person, but you're just not capable of doing this job, and like this job is shut off to like ninety ninety five percent of people, right, or more. Uh, and there, I think like at least in circles that I run into, there's a lot more talk about institutional design and like what incentives we give people. The kind of Steven Pinker case, and of course you have to do both. Right. But I'm just much more on the side of like, we just need to be sorting people way better uh, and much less on the side of, we need to expose people to like these different kind of like incentive systems. Uh, although, like, as I said already, you, you kind of have to do both. So like what, what kind of solutions do you pursue in this kind of, in this kind of aspect? Right. What, how do we, how do we get out of this mess? Right? Well, I mean, in the shortest way to answer.
0: It's a good question. There's a lot of levels. The first obvious thing that comes to mind is if you don't have good institutional design, How are you going to filter? Yeah. Right? Like you can't filter without good institutional design because the institution will be taken over by people who want to use different filters than you. And suddenly you'll be filtering for things you don't want to be filtering for very quickly. Right? Like A players hire, you know, the A players can hire A players, B players hire C players, et cetera. Problem. Wait, uh,
1: have have you read the blog post slash tablet article or are you just like spontaneously quoting this other quote? Like I, this, is, this is like one of my favorite quotes. <laughs>
0: I've read it. Sure. Of course. But like if the, the same principle applied elsewhere, but the idea of, yeah. I think if you don't have good, if you don't have good mechanism design, if you don't have good incentive design, you won't attract, you only really won't be able to filter for these people when they apply, but they won't be interested in your organization.
1: They yeah. Uh, I think I just asked this question improperly. Right? right. So if we, if we break this down into like, uh, nurture versus selection right or like selection versus like um what information people are exposed to right like what percentage of this is like keeping people from getting into the gate in the first place and what percentage is like orienting a system where those people are rewarded for the right right? thing and i agree with you that they have to be that you have to do both and that if you just do extremely poorly in one of them, it will sabotage the whole so thing. Are we thinking, about this,
0: are we thinking about yeah. on the level of a project, a company, or are we thinking about the level of a society? Right.
1: Uh, we, can, we can do each, but like for, I'm most interested in kind of these large bureaucratic organizations, whether it's a company or a government. So,
0: right. I think as a large bureaucratic organization, yeah, I, I think that you need to like, you need both. You strongly need both. If you fail at either, you fail outright. Uh, yeah, you will cause the other to fail. And, you know, fundamentally speaking, you know, I think that in the short run, hiring well, especially for top positions, is your biggest priority. But in the long run, institutional design is the only thing that ever saves you. Like really, really good institutional design is the only way. Like, because there'll be too much turnover over time of different people. And they will turn over according to the design of the institution way too much. So, like, it's all kind of flows together at that level. On the level of a society, I think that you need to make sure that you actually, like, teach people to be the right thing. That you create a culture that rewards the things you want that encourages the things you want, that honors them, that also pays them, right? That gives people a story of this is how I get ahead. And this is what I want to teach my kids. And that's the main way you have to fix it. Like you have to change the zeitgeist. You have to change this sort of thing in the air about what I should aspire to be and what other people should aspire to be and what you should reward and punish. And, you know, we talk about like presidents sort of changing this kind of thing through their cultural impact, for example, somewhat. You need that kind of effect.
1: So, So my response to that would be like a large group of people are like are simply going to social climb, right? And they're not just gonna conform in in the way that they're just going to like listen to a narrative and then internalize it they're going to like do whatever rewards them in their social circles. And most of their social circles are going to consist of people in the same way. So I think that there's, I'm just like very skeptical. I mean, if you take that argument, I mean, I I don't know if we even disagree with this. Maybe you just think that we need to do that on the margins, but like, I just think like the most, the primary orientation that most people have of the world is like social climbing. Right. So when you have that, when you just have that as, like, a base factor, then no amount of education will, so, will train them in a way l- l- where l- l- they will make, like, hard decisions despite the incentives of their present situation.
0: So I'm going to just ask for clarification as to whether you actually believe that. When you say most people, do you mean, like, of the 330 million people in the United States— Like all of them? Most of, like that subgroup, most of those people view their lives primarily through social climate. Is that your model?
1: I don't know if view is right, but I would say that behave accordingly is right.
0: I think it's wrong.
1: So, huh.
0: So, I I think, I
1: mean, this is pretty, sorry,
0: go ahead, go ahead. But I think that the modal person, the median person, the, the, the Joe Six Pack, as it were, right? The man on the street uh, doesn't care very much about that sort of thing. Uh, I think they are trying to raise a family and have a job and get by and do relatively normal things and they have a common sense morality that is not inverted for the most part and they go about their day. Like, I think this idea that like if you just went to the sub you know you just went down to some rural, some random person, they'd be primarily trying to social climb as a central thing about their lives. I think that's just factually wrong. Because I think this is sort of a luxury good. Right? Like,
1: maybe I'm maybe I'm not expressing like social climbing properly. Uh so, so Robin Hanson has this has this puzzle in his book. I know you already know about this, this is mainly for the audience but where he talks about like the the purpose of conversation right where he's like okay well what's the story we tell ourselves why do people have conversations well it's to like learn new things right it's like oh we want to we want to just hear about other people and if you actually look at the way most people behave, this is the opposite of the case. Most people try to speak as much as they can. Uh, well, not literally, but they try to speak much more than than you would expect, right? If you actually, if if the purpose was learning more things, you would you would not really speak other than to ask questions, right? And there are all these sorts of other factors that come into play, and the most primary one is like gaining status within this friend group, right? So when I say social climbing, I mean basically like concentrated on or not even like this is kind of a thing you're right in that it's like hard to talk about these things explicitly it's hard to have the right language to talk about these things explicitly like concentrating isn't the right word but basically doing things to the distribution of social status instead of the distribution of like just reality right I think that that is the primary uh, that is the primary orientation of most people's actions if not their explicit thoughts
0: So I would challenge that in many ways. The first way I would say is that like this idea that people are doing things for reasons, for the most part, as opposed to executing adaptations, right? This idea that like when I engage in a conversation, like I think Robin would probably agree with this reorientation that we somewhat, that they're not consciously thinking about – sometimes they are, but often they're not. Questions like, how do I get the most information out of this conversation? And how do I get the most status out of this conversation? They're like subconsciously considering these things in the background, but mostly they're just engaging in conversation because that's what you do in this spot. Like, I'm at a place where I engage in conversation. So I'm engaging in conversation. And maybe they're just trying to enjoy their conversation even. And this is how they've been trained to enjoy it by these other backgrounds. It's like less homo-economists. Or rationality or something, then it's being portrayed there. But more than that, like you know, yes, on the margins, we're choosing behaviors and conversations to maximize a number of different things at once. And one of the important ones is our social status, and we always have to keep an eye on our social status, even in a relatively confined, relatively simple group. But It doesn't mean that we are sort of out there to make our social status as high and maximal as possible, or this is the center of most of what we do. And also like conversation is just a very small portion of what we do all day. If we think of conversation as with people who are sufficiently connected to us, that it impacts our social status, especially like most people are mostly engaging in other kinds of activities that, don't realistically impact their social status directly, only indirectly through things like, you know, accomplishing physical ends that then give them more resources or don't. Uh, And like, I think a lot of social status worry is not as much, I want to climb as high as possible, but I want to maintain the order properly. Right? It's a kind of improv rather than a war. So, you know, we have a friend group And if one of us got to be too high status relative to the rest of us, then the group would become disequilibrated, right? It would become unbalanced. And this would be like uncomfortable and it would lessen the enjoyment. Also, I mean, if you've read the Gervais Principle, like you get the idea of you have a group of friends. Yes, they are constantly playing status games among the losers in particular, but only in this model, the top and the bottom of the social hierarchy can ever be known with certainty, right you know mm. who the top you know who the top gun is, and you know who the bottom person is on the list, right, but in any interaction, both sides will work to disguise who is two and who is three out of four or who mm. is six and who is seven out of ten. The whole idea is that we don 't do that; we want to avoid that by being ambiguous and so If I claim too much status in some sense, I have to be brought down a peg by the rest of us. And I will do that preemptively myself if I can, while being conscious that I don't want to end up at the bottom. And I may or may not want to be at the top because being at the top has certain responsibilities that I might not want. But if I'm at the top, I might like be looked to to do things or decide things or to uh, moderate other social disputes and status disputes that I don't want to do. And I might be tempted to try and move up to the next tier of group or find a better group in ways that I particularly don't want to do. I like my group. So usually people want to be in the happy middle actually is my model here. Right? Like, like I, I don't want to surpass the
1: Joneses, but I damn well want to keep up with them. I would agree with you that this is mostly adaptation or like, I don't know. Like, it depends. Like, do do we mean kind of like social adaptation or like evolutionary adaptation, right? Because I think that is, a lot of this is evolutionary adaptation. Um, although I do think evo psych is overrated, but not in this case. Um, I think a lot that's, of it, that's yeah. a completely different conversation to have. But like, yeah. um, like I, I do think that this the, none of this is happening consciously, right? At, at least with with like ninety nine percent of people, all of this is subconscious. But that, I mean, like, are we? Wait, so, so this is a case that it's, like, n- people aren't that focused on status? Wait, I, okay. Like, I, I think that, like, well, there's a difference between, like, perceived as number one. Also, This is also something that's just coming to mind right now. Like, this maybe should, should be obvious, but there's a difference between, like, perceived as number one and, like, actually number one, right? The, the idea is that, like, the best the best kind of, like, maybe, like, climbers is not the right word because you don't want, like, you don't want to be, like, noticed as number one, right? You, you need to be, like, subtle about it, right? But, That basically, like, people people are not trying to be perceived as number one, but they are nonetheless trying to be number one, (laughs) right?
0: I think sometimes they are, and sometimes they're not. And uh, if anything, you know, look, I have a very strange group of friends, right, that I've collected data from over the years. And look, in in magic, like, everybody is constantly in some sense trying to be as high status as they can. Uh, It happens to be through accomplishment much more so than in other contexts. But there's much mm-hmm. less of this. I want to regulate the group. But in many other contexts, I think that like, yeah, everybody has a good sense of like what the correct status hierarchy should be. And they're worried about status constantly in the sense that they want to maintain the correct hierarchy in a situation, in a relationship, in a group. Uh, like you don't necessarily want to be higher status than your boss. That creates problems.
1: Oh, I, I, this is uh, this is a different line of uh, questioning that I'm also getting to later on. But yeah, I, I would definitely agree agree with that point. You're kind of trying to avoid these kind of like you're you're trying to avoid like there there are areas where like the status competition is not like is it's not open season, right? You you can't compete with status for your boss because then your boss bossable. That, that's not how the patronage wind works at all. Um, that's opposite of how the patronage pyramid works. But in fact, like this is the point that I was thinking about earlier, which is like, are you like, I don't think this is a disagreement in terms of the idea that people are fundamentally ori- that like a large portions of the population are fundamentally oriented towards status. Right. I view this as like an agreement with my idea. Maybe this is just because like, we are, we're so far in this corner of like hidden motive space that, you know, like, Ninety-nine percent of people are going to disagree with us, nonetheless, right? But I, I see this as like agreement, right? I see this as like confirmatory to the idea that we are we are that like an enormous amount of effort is spent negotiating over status.
0: I mean, I do think that a tremendous amount of, of effort is spent negotiating over status, but I think that sort of the, the thing that I fundamentally think about when I think about somebody being primarily oriented in that way is a feeling that like. Does not feel like the thing that I see like in a minute to minute execution of somebody's life for most people, nor is it the thing that they actually care about in some important sense? It's more like it's one of the many things they can fail at, and they have and like this requires because of the evolutionary competitions that've been built in like some sort of constant vigilance in potential social situations in order to not have a problem there. But, like, if I said these pieces people's lives were primarily oriented around money, I can make a very, very strong case for that. Right? Around, like, this physical accomplishment and survival. Or any number of other things. You know?
1: I mean, yeah. Yeah. I guess... So what is the... Okay. I'm just trying to trace back here. So the original disagreement here, the reason why we're down this path, is, like, this question of, like, selection versus, like, incentives, right? And so the initial... The point that this contestation was going to lead to is that you're going to have a lot of situations where you try to orient the incentives, and if you fill this with, like... if It doesn't matter, like, if you fill this with someone in the 95% who are primarily motivated... Or, okay, let's maybe not say primarily, but, like, significantly motivated by status, right? If you fill someone in that position... In say, like a CDC position, right? It doesn't matter what the incentives are. They're going to start building pi- patronage pyramids, right? It doesn't matter, like, how hard you try to reward people for competence and, and like, uh, select out people for incompetence. Like, it is kind of like the B player thing, right? You hire one B player onto a team of A players, the whole team suddenly becomes B players, right? It, it's the same deal. It's that basically, like, they have to be kept out at basically all costs, right? They're a design constraint. That That's the kind of main point here.
2: Hmm.
0: Yeah, they have to be kept out. I am not as terrified of 1B player as that if they are not in charge, but I certainly do think it's, like, a problem. Um, but... When we say design the incentive structure and we say people are primarily motivated by status, I do want to keep in mind it's a job and to a large extent, like, it's because status is serving as a proxy for money.
1: and that, is like, it, Or is money serving as a proxy for status, right? Both are, both are true. Yeah,
0: that's,
1: what, that's fair. Like, what, are, what, what is the... Yeah, like, what is the area, what is the level of analysis that will reap the most fruit? Right, like I don't think money, like really, truly explains someone like going into a CDC position. Like, quite frankly, like those people aren't completely stupid. Like, they can make a lot of money elsewhere. Right, I
0: think that's right. I think that there's I've encountered in several contexts this problem of the status hierarchy insists the monetary hierarchy reflects the status hierarchy. And Hmm. therefore you can't actually match people's market value or necessary incentives to get them to be part of the team because like I can't get my programmer because the amount he's worth is far exceeds the place he would go on the status hierarchy or on the org chart. And therefore like Everybody else just like goes, "How dare you?" And I'm like, "Well, I don't know what to do about that. That's a problem." (laughs) And like the programmer isn't actually act. And this is a case of the programmer not wanting status, right? The programmer does not want to boss people around. The programmer does not want everybody to think of this, think of them as super high status. The programmer wants to write awesome code and get paid for it. And Mm, this
1: is very relatable. Yes,
0: and they're not allowed to because the other people won't stand for it because they see this as having status implications. And in the case of the CDC, I would say one of the handicaps CDC has is that they cannot pay even the head of the CDC that much money. Right. Yes. That, that that she cannot be compensated with the money she deserves. Like, and like I, I am not the biggest fan of Velasquez, right? Like, or CDC is done. But, you know, I am very, very confident that she's underpaid, like dramatically underpaid and that it's not fair in an important sense to pay her that little and give her that much responsibility. And if we don't compensate her with money directly, she's going to get paid some other way. Hmm. Right? And what is that other way? And is it something we're going to like? And she's going to, and we're gonna select the CDC director who wants the job and worked over the course of their entire career to be eligible for this type of job, knowing he didn't pay any money. So they wanted it for some other reason. Mm. And maybe that's because they want to make sure the most people are healthy. And that's great. But I worry.
1: Yes. <laughs> and, and for the audience empirically, that is not the case. I mean, they probably, they probably got this from the earlier conversation.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I would be, <laughs> I am not actually that big a, you know, this person that me, does not mean well in some broad sense, but you'll get somebody who thinks that meaning well means fighting for the CDC to a large extent and fighting for procedure hmm. and, you know, respecting the experts and blah, blah, blah. And there's very few ways to get around that, uh, with our current system. And you know to bring yes, I, I think if you if you ten x the pay of the head of all of the agencies, that would be money very
1: well spent. Right, and so the kind of continuation that I had to that point before, where we we're talking about like the status competition with your boss, is that what the incentive that matters to me? Right, the incentive that matters the most to me is, like, whether or not this level of social competition exists at all, right? Like, in a, in many corporations, the only way that you get promoted over your boss is actually, like, just metrics, right? And this isn't universally true. There are cer- certainly exceptions, right? But there are many positions where you can say, like, 99% of the time, The only way past this position is if you do well. And in that case, the social competition is just shut off. Uh, of course, there are other kind of like, there are other social means, right? You can, you can suck up to your boss. You can, uh, you can do all of these things. Um, you can adopt various status symbols, but that line of direct social competition makes it is, is gone. So at the very least, the boss does not view you as a threat you do not view your boss as a competitor or someone to be overcame. And uh, my big, actually i pu- published an article on this like very recently, right? It was a review of like basically these three books in combination, uh, Nietzsche's Zarathustra, um, Fukuyama's The End of History, and uh, The Last Psychiatrist's Sadly Porn. And, I think when you combine these these three things together what you get is that essentially like this process of creating like a liberal democracy of egalitarian norms where more and more people are interacting and are free to interact and feel that kind of like isosymia that kind of self confidence to be like confident that you're equal to someone right what you're doing is you're expanding the scope of social competition you're you're crushing that kind of uh, relationship where it's just like you should not be having a social competition with these people and especially like you see this on social media you see this on stuff like Twitter you see this on stuff like the increasing like what John Rob calls like the swarm behavior right this is what happens when you have when you're just like taking this form of social competition this form of like fundamentally egalitarian social competition that was at the very least contained in the past and you're just expanding this throughout like everything Right, You're not only saying this is like morally good, but you're saying that this is like mandatory. And in fact, if you don't do this, well, we're going to like bomb your Middle Eastern country.
0: <laughs> that went a little too far at the end, I would think. But you're definitely, you're definitely <laughs> opening people up to a much more broad social competition with social status markers in their face, much more quantified than it used to be at all times. And yes, this is quite bad in general. And... Forcing people to compete in this way is, is almost but I want to ask about those books specifically before we uh, before I address the, uh, the thing.
1: Yeah, fire away.
0: Uh, so one of these books is a book that is commonly mocked as being rather silly. And the other two are books that I started but could not
1: get. Wait, which one? <laughs>
0: <laughs> the End of History. It could be any of the three. <laughs> okay, yes. But the other two are books that I started but could not bring myself to care enough to finish. Without getting too far into them. So like... Do you think I'm making a mistake?
1: Uh, wait, you still haven't told me which one. Okay,
0: the end of history. I was just like, well, by the time I like, I read I read I read uh, Fukuyama's one of these other books, and it was like fine, but like I never got tempted to, to read the end of history. And then for sadly porn, I like read it on the airplane, got through the hardcore porn story while on the airplane, which is that's something about hardcore porn stories. <laughs> and then when I was gone to the plane, it was like yeah, I just can't motivate myself to keep going here. And then with Zarathustra, like, I don't know. Like, I just read it and was like, huh, that's interesting. And then, like, I, I like, kept going through. I was just like, I just don't want to read this. I don't feel like I'm getting anything out of it. And I feel like it's, like, just painful.
1: Like... Okay, so the end of history is the one that is roundly mocked. Okay.
0: Well, more roundly, like, just in principle. Yeah. Like, Nietzsche is just Nietzsche, right? Like, what are you going to do with Nietzsche? Yeah. Like, mocking Nietzsche yeah. is just like, now you're just being lame. Like, sort of the, the entire concept, like, the entire concept just being considered, like, well, that was wrong. Like, the end of history, uh-huh. You know, but... Whereas, sadly, porn is, like, how do you mock it? The author mocks it in the first page. <laughs> yeah, just that's right. It's like, you know, at one point, like, any anything else that happens because you read this book is on you. I told you not to do that.
1: Yeah, so <laughs> this is something that I thought... Of, I don't know, maybe this, like, breaks the book for some people... But you know what? I've already, like, info-hazarded enough people with my book review, right? Check it out on my sub-stack, right? Um, beware that you're going to be info-hazarded, right? But I think the best way to proceed through that book is, like, I think within, like, the first 100 pages, I was like, wait, okay, here's the point of the book. And the point of the book is that, like, In the same way that Nietzsche thought that this is the point I make in the book review, in the same way that Nietzsche uh, thought that God was dead and it just hasn't been announced yet, um, TLP thinks that history is dead, right? People cannot, like, reason with stories the same way, right? Back in the day, someone tells you a story that, like, really motivates you, that changes the way you act nowadays, like, people tell you a story, it's like, whatever, right? It's almost exactly the same thing that Nietzsche describes when he says, like, God is dead. People can't, people simply cannot behave in this way anymore, right? They cannot take God seriously and act seriously uh, alongside it. And if you think about that, like, what are the implications of that? It's like, all of news is done, right? And if you just look empirically, like, all of news is done, right? Like, people are not, people are not, like, changing their behaviors in the same way that you would expect if people were, like, taking, in, like, the Walter Concrete days, right? Those days, like, you'd seriously swing, like, you could seriously swing elections with that shit, right? And then with, uh, with, um, with uh, the last psychiatrist, he's not just saying this about news, he's saying this about, like, history or, like, storytelling, Right? that the form of engagement with storytelling is no longer one of like internalizing this thing. It's like, it's basically like irony poisoning, right? You have, you have taken so many stories that have just not come up to anything. that just not amount to anything and are in fact, uh, are in fact mutually exclusive, right? They're contradictory with each other. Uh, You, you've just been exposed to such like top tier, like pornographized storytelling that like you, you're not taking any of it seriously anymore. Right, and I don't necessarily mean you specifically, like I mean I mean like random random like civilian, right? And so you quickly run into the puzzle here, and what's the puzzle you run into? It's like, okay, I've just told you a story about why you can't take stories seriously anymore um you don't take the story seriously anymore even if you think i'm telling you the truth right so so how am i going to convince you of this well that's that's sadly porn that's what that's what he's actually trying to do that's why it's like berating you that's why at least how i read it i read it as like a stand-up comedy right he's he's like insulting the audience and then the audience just like laughs at all his punchlines right that's kind of how i read it and i think that that if you, once you have that kind of thing in your mind, once you can like parse it, right? Once you have it in your mind, you just like parse it right away, right? Every paragraph is just like, oh, that's what he's doing. That's the beats that he's hitting. That's like, that's like how we're getting to A to B, right? So why read the book? Uh, so, so why read the book is that um, it you require you have to read the book in order to take it seriously, kind of, right? You you can't just like you can't just have listen to me tell you this. Uh, well, like maybe you can, right? You're someone who takes statistics much more seriously, which is another thing that I talk about in the review. You're someone who takes statistics much more seriously. But like the thing that I think I would have not have been able to get if someone had just like told me that so just told me like history is dead, is actually like there are probably like zero smart people who take propaganda seriously enough, right? And what I mean by that is like taking propaganda seriously is not just like thinking like, oh, it is the best propaganda that we're going to have. It's like okay, we are going to have these stories this I talk about this as like pornographized history right A good example of this doing of this being done wrong is Balaji Shuava's the network state. So Balji Shu's the network state it starts off with a story about um, or it starts off talking about how basically like history is important. A lot of people are acting off of these kind of historical narratives, whether it's like uh, whether it's like, uh, trumpism whether it's like quote unquote wokeism right whether it's like um the old-fashioned like neoconservative like it's the constitution boys kind of thing right uh all of this is a historical narrative that is like driving human action okay right but i think that if you take the case from sadly porn seriously and i mean it's still an open question how seriously you should take it because, like, I'm not pretending that this is kind of, like, a rigorous work in any way, right? I don't think anyone is. But, like, if you take it seriously, it's, like, actually, no, this is not what's happening. People are being motivated by the kind of pornographic beats, the kind of, like, every single uh, instance of a story is being twisted to make you, like, feel, right? So a good example of this happening in practice is, like, the 1619 Project was released a long time before George Floyd, and, like, if you think about it, like, uh, as much as you dislike the sixty, as much as like anyone in my audience dislikes the sixteen nineteen project, it's a much more. It, it cares about like facts and about like making factual claims a lot more than any of the kind of post George Floyd like apologia, right? All of the post George Floyd apologia was not even pretending that like this one person is making this, like, huge impact in your life, it's, like, pornographized. It's not, like, here's a story about history and it explains why you're so screwed and why everyone is secretly racist. Like, no, it's, like, here is literally, like, a pornographized story about one person who is completely irrelevant to you. Everyone, It's transparent that it's completely irrelevant to you, but instead, every single moment where you can be made to feel something, you are made to feel something, right? Like... So the answer is, like, okay, you're gonna go forward, you're gonna exist in this political world where people don't believe in history, and actually, what that means is, like, you just lie to people. <laughs> and, like, whoever wins is going to be someone who just lies to people, does not pretend that they're telling the truth, is, like, blatant about this in this kind of, like, it's what Jarvin uh, calls aggressive modernism, right? Basically, like, everything that you do is, like, that the like the way of communication, the way of aggregating power is like you're not even pretending to be in this mode of like telling a historical story. You're not you're not even like making a historical story, you're making everything fit to the form so that it like look looks right to someone who's just inspecting it on the surface level. You're going like so many layers beyond that.
2: And this is new?
1: <laughs> That's a very interesting reaction. Okay, uh, how is this not new?
0: Well, so for example, you have Nietzsche in your specific third example, right? Yes. Writing this in
1: what was it about 1900? I don't remember the exact. Uh, what book. do you mean by my th- third example? Your third
0: book in your in your in your, in your trilogy, oh yeah
1: definitely definitely
0: right saying more or less the same thing in your mind. Right. Like you're saying that he is and I read enough to be like, okay, I can see how one might interpret this that way, like extrapolating the rest of the book out. And so, like, if Nietzsche, a rather observant fellow, no matter what else you think of him, said this a 100 years before the end of history. Well, when did this start? Right. When did this when when was this ever not true?
1: Wait, by this you mean, like, the the kind of aggressive modernism, the, like, not even pretending to tell a story?
0: Well.
2: So, okay. like, here,
1: here's how I would track it. Here, here's how I would track it, like, ideologically, is that basically, like, Nietzsche pointed out that this is, it's not the pursuit of truth. Right, but I think the pursuit of truth is different from like the pursuit of like a coherent story. Like I think that there's like this iterated devolution, and there are different stages of the devolution, and the devolution looks similar to each other, but I don't think they're quite the same. I think there are parallels for sure. Right, but I don't think it's the same.
0: Hmm. Okay, that's interesting.
1: Yeah, that was that was one hell of a, a, a side quest.
0: I mean, this is actually a thing that I've been thinking about at various points for a while. Sort of, you see mm-hmm. all these things that seem so devastatingly not working, and dysfunctional, and broken about our current world, and it makes you wonder: Is this because our current world is uniquely broken? Or is this because T'was always such And maybe we had somewhat of a golden age
1: And I think I don't know I think our our world is like not that broken Right Like sure there are a lot of things That are broken but like Most things in most of history Are broken right We still have like if if we just like teleported Like our economy to like I don't know the 1800s Right it would actually just, like, clearly be better. Well, part of that is because of technology, right? But even just, like, the change in logistics, the change in how we organize ourselves in terms of, like, trade, right? Like, some of these things, like, obviously having, like, a fast ship is different than having a slow ship. But, like, some of these kind of social technologies, right, they are still preferable to most, to, like, the vast majority of human history, right?
0: Yeah, I definitely don't see the same things as broken as most of the people who go around saying society is horrible or focusing on, right? I would definitely agree there,
1: but like, okay, what is, or sorry, go on, go on. Right. When we ask
0: about like this phenomenon where like people do symbolic versions of things rather than things and are not actually motivated to accomplish the thing they're trying to accomplish. Like, yeah, when we look at the state of political division, when we look at our inability, it seems like, to be allowed to do anything are overburdensome by rules and restrictions and the where people just don't feel a freedom to act in any way. Like, and a general, like, clear decline in the time I've been around in discourse norms and ability to, like, have intelligent conversations and actually talk about things in various ways. Like, I see things have gotten worse, but is that because we were unusually good or is that because we're now unusually bad? And you can say that, like, yes, mm-hmm. our economy and our stuff is vastly better than it has ever been. And globally construed is still rapidly improving. But I know a lot of people who were worried that, like, things could go south very quickly because we are no longer capable of recreating and maintaining what the, what the ancients have passed to us.
1: Right. Yeah. This is, this is certainly a theme of this show as well. Uh, Have you ever spoken to Sam O'Burria? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. He, he's been great on this. Uh, Yeah. He's been on the show. Um, I mean, I'm not sure how much of a tangent we want to go into this, but uh, actually, yeah, sure. I, I, I I think I'd enjoy this quite a lot and my audience would enjoy this as well. Um, So like, what is your kind of like break your model of like breakdown basically? Right or or what Simon calls decivilization. De-
0: so, is it a, a potential future scenario where things just go south
2: yeah. through a
1: general breakdown?
0: Um, it basically comes down to we get steadily worse and worse at producing and maintaining key parts of our infrastructure, and in like actually working properly to produce things. And this combines with an aging and potentially declining population, a greater debt burden, and a general feeling that the pie is shrinking rather than growing. As these things start to get bad, causing people to make more and more like bad rules and bad social responses that make things progressively worse. And these problems feed on on themselves. As everybody feels like they're being cheated, everybody feels like everything is unacceptable. And also... Like we just literally don't know how to be allowed to do the things that we used to be able to do at any reasonable cost. And like as things get as things get worse, things get less affordable. And so trying to do things becomes more expensive. And so we actually do less maintenance and we actually do less of keeping things running. And then like we just start producing less. At some point, the corner turns and you just start producing less stuff and you start distributing less stuff. And then we're in a lot of real trouble. And then perhaps reasonably soon, the grid stops working reliably and stuff like that.
1: Yeah. Is there anything, okay. Is there anything out of the three? These are kind of like the three big topics that I usually have when I, when I bring this arc up, uh, which are energy uh, economies of scale and like populism. Are, Are there, which are there any of the three that you like really want to hit?
0: I would say economies of scale don't scare me. Uh, huh. I'm, I'm yeah. not sure exactly which economy is, I'm not even sure which direction you're worried about here. Are you worried that like, if we stop having enough economies of scale that we'll get less productive and this will cause the down spiral? the yeah. spiral?
1: Declining birth rates. So this is like the SAMO story, right? Declining birth rates plus supply chain disruptions plus deglobalization means less economies of scale. And once some parts of the economies of scale start failing, then the possibility of other economies of scale to continue working. Uh, economically, also disappear, and then that's how so the system.
0: I'm worried about declining birth rates because I'm worried about populations being relatively aged, like you know, having less working age population as a percentage and less productive, work, less productive ability as a percentage of the people who are there. And I'm also worried about debt burdens, but I don't worry about it as economies of scale. Uh, that seems like a weird thing to worry about. It also seems like very much an opposite concern of supply chains because, like, right now we've had a lot of supply chain disruption in the last few years. And that's largely not because the supply chains have gotten worse. It's because we have tried to ship more stuff through the same pipes. And the pipes can't expand their capacity as fast as our desire to consume things has gone up with the pandemic and the various subsidies and the shift from consuming services. And this has caused... Oh, yeah.
1: I don't think it's the same as, like, the current concern over supply chains. I'm sorry if that was unclear.
0: Right, right. But what I meant was that, like... The supply chain, in a real sense, had a certain amount of throughput. And if you have less people, then our existing infrastructure actually becomes much better at serving those people. If there's less demand for stuff, if there's less consumption, because there are less people consuming.
1: And okay, yeah, that is a factor that I should make in. Yeah, like the cost of transportation decreases as uh, as stress. Right, like as, as... Right, well,
0: you probably can't build more. In many ways, we can't build more things, but we can absolutely keep, but you know, we're hoping to keep the things we have around and eke more out of them in various important senses. And yeah, that gets easier in many ways rather than harder, right? The ancients passed down everything we need in some sense in that way. Yeah. Uh, in terms of deglobalization, um, I am not convinced that much meaningful deglobalization will actually occur, but I'm also like, it could be a sort of relatively modest one-time shock or something. I don't think it is a huge issue in the long run. Like the difference between 7 billion and 300 million or 2 billion, or depending on exactly how big the spheres are that we have the globalization on. Uh,
1: obviously... You just don't think there'll be like a China-U.S. disconnect?
0: I mean, obviously there's, there's a chance the pop... There, there'll, there'll be a gradual weakening of the connection over time that I don't expect to have more than a few percent impact in a way that, like, I wouldn't worry about collapse scenarios based on that kind of thing. Uh, oh. I would worry in the short term about a sudden severe break on invasion of Taiwan specifically. Okay. But only that specifically is my current model. Like as long as we can not actually start sh- like cold warring each other outright and like just declaring a blockade, but that would be a transitional problem. Right. And it would actually be much more of a problem for them than I think it would, than it would be for us. Like, we would have problems with, like, certain rare elements and certain specific supply chains. But also, like, Americans can survive with less stuff for quite a while. uh, As long as that stuff isn't energy.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I I agree. I, I agree on that analysis as well. Like, I mean, I agree on that analysis. Maybe not as optimistic about Americans surviving. Like, I think there'll be, like... I mean, in terms of, like, the civilization going on, like, yeah, totally. Um, but just in terms of just how absurdly vulnerable, I think, like, America, maybe Europeans have a better sense of this than Americans. I'm not so sure. They're also really dominated by American media. But, like, just energy scarcity and, like, food scarcity being an issue in China, like, the amount that that is an issue in China, like, it's not really understandable in the U.S. It's like, the U.S. not having enough food? Like, that's not even imaginable, right? Like um so yeah i i think i i agree with you on that it'll hit china much harder and so they uh, they have much lower incentives And i think that
2: right uh, they have a lot
1: to lose i'm actually actually much worried about the u much more worried about the u.s initiating this i think you should never underestimate the neocons what neocons but yes (laughs) um (laughs) what okay at this point yeah yeah like all of them what (laughs) Like uh, from Bolton to Crystal and back, right? Like, and not just like the okay. there's this like very interesting report as well, which is like someone going to like to, to like NatCon, if you know what that is, like National Conservatism, right? It's this like new right thing, and it's like there's so many neocons there, right? Like, there there sure there are like nominally like anti anti war people like JD Vance or whatever, right? But like most of the people there are neocons, right? Like the neocons, like th- they will not die, like they're not dying. <laughs> They they will always be back. They're we will have an eternal recurrence. Neocons, yeah. right? Like they're dying
0: one year at a time right now. Like I don't mean that like they're shifting their views. I I don't know. But my as far as I can tell, my model of the Republican Party is that the neocons like like to think they should have influence in some sense, but they just don't.
1: Like, wait, so so like the, yeah in in what way right? Like if you just look at like Trump foreign policy right like very very bullish on israel uh assassination of Qasem Soleimani. sure you had, like the the afghanistan i do agree that like a point in 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 co- in contrast is like the afghanistan like uh retreat deal but i think the neocons were actually like very poised to to uh blow that up until like biden came in and actually did it right uh, like you just look at how neurotically trump reacts to like basically war news and it's just like man, this is just, or even just, like, look objectively at the foreign policy decisions that he made, like, sure, you might say, like, okay, there are people making populist noises, but also, like, objectively, this is a neocon foreign policy. And I think also with, like, the past few years, like, they've also become much more entrenched in the democratic establishment as well, to the point where, like, democratic foreign policy is, like, at the very least, like, at the center of what it would have been, like I don't know, like twenty years ago, right? I mean,
0: I haven't studied it as much as I should, but I definitely
1: don't. Yeah, know- no worries. We don't need yeah. to talk about this. Yeah, if don't
0: not, not my impression, but yeah, I just don't think that I know enough to to say. So we can probably unwind the the thread a bit.
1: Yeah, no worries. So the other two were um, the other two were populism and energy. And uh, do you want to touch on those?
0: Yeah, I think those are. Uh both pretty terrifying. Like energy, you know, we've got, you know, one party who is basically against producing energy, broadly construed, and an entire continent in Europe which is against producing energy, broadly construed. And that's going to be a very large problem unless we reverse that because they have a lot of power to halt the production of energy. And like, you know, when what is it? 99% of all offshore wind projects are stuck in approval process and permitting. And like, you can't build or even keep in operation a nuclear power plant until the last year. And even then it's kind of a struggle. And, you know, I don't know where they think the energy is going to come from. You know, they, they also don't particularly like mining for lithium. So like, I don't really see how we maintain and the, the, they, they sort of have this magical you know, idea that it'll all work out. And I don't think that's true. I, I think that like, if we can solve our energy problems, I'll be a lot less worried. I also worry about the grid, just like not being maintained, like literally
1: us not doing the work. Yeah. Do you know like Doomberg, like the green chicken guy? No. Okay. So, so he's like a, uh or like, there's like a public spokesperson guy. And like, uh it's like a, there's like a team of people who work on it, but like um, they're like an energy consultancy company and like a newsletter. Uh, and uh, they've been on the show, right? Or like the main, the main guy has been on the show, uh, basically pseudonymous. And they have this metaphor of the energy ladder, right? What's our leading indicator of decivilization? It's basically that like the order, the order in which civilizations of the past have gone up in discovering new energy sources. We're going in reverse. Right. So looking at like Germany starting all the coal fired plants and like gathering firewood, like this is, this is the leading indicator of like basically very rough winters for Germany and possibly like serious, serious energy crises uh, for the entire country. Right. And, and I think that's about right. It's like. With every kind of energy transition, with every energy transition forward, there's this wave of uncertainty and complexity that's introduced. And you saw this most strongly with uh, the Industrial Revolution, uh, with the ensuing wars and populist movements and other topic that I think we'll talk about. And it's like, okay, at every point in time, there are these, there's just this like psychological instinct to, I, I think like something else that maybe differs us as well, is that I'm much more willing to blame the voters than you are. But there's, like, the psychological instinct to, like, to basically cause poverty. Like, that's not explicitly what they they're not like, okay, let's go out and let's cause some poverty, guys! But no, it's this kind of, like, paranoia, it's this kind of, like, neuroticism, this, like, um, selection for people who are not willing to be ambitious. Like, right? Why
0: are you treating the public as player characters in your story? Is something might react. It's not so much that I'm like, you're wrong to blame the public in like the framework that you've created, but that like the framework is like irrelevant or like not helpful. Like, I don't particularly want to be like, well, you know, if we just had a better public who understood the physical world better. And who had better motivations that things would be better. And like I agree with that.
2: No, the thing
1: isn't that we make or maybe like I think we agree more than we we disagree here. Yeah. Right? Like the, the change is not to um the change is not to fix the public, it's to give the public less say. Right? It's it's like basically like libertarianism, right? Like that's that's the end to this, is that we should have just like a much more libertarian energy policy, much more libertarian like drug policy, right? It's like the public should not be trusted with this decision, these decisions. It's not like I, it's not like we should like engineer a better public.
0: The problem with the public is the public hates trade. It hates markets, right? Fundamentally speaking, the left really, really hates them. And the right, like, is the suspicious, like the real, you know, not, not the right politics, but the actual people. And, yeah.
1: Like, like the public.
0: And they don't actually believe in, Like, you know, and they don't really believe in, like, growing pies and positive sum interactions and the idea that, like, you can – like, people can get ahead by just, like, producing the stuff and that's good. And that, like, if you don't fundamentally have that idea – and they also have the idea that, like, regulation, broadly construed, is good for the world. And, like, when you have these things and you have no renewal of the system, yeah, it creates continuous – like squeezing on anyone's ability to do anything. And also like the more that things start to go badly, the more the populace will start screaming for confiscation and for like dictating what can happen and like trying to command how things go. And it'll lead right into authoritarianism.
1: Uh, Yeah. yeah. Could not have, could not have summed it better myself. Uh, I guess, like, one other addendum to this is, like, this isn't for you, but, like, I I do worry about not making this point clearly enough, right? Like, the target audience to my, like, saying the public is going to continue making these bad decisions is, like, Andrew Yang voters, right? So, like, the Andrew Yang thesis is, like, if only we had ranked choice voting, the public would be much more rational and all of our problems would be solved. It's, like, no, stop wanting to assign more power to the public no matter what voting system you want, right? Maybe it'll be better along the margins, sure, right? But, like, this is not the primary focus of the problem, right? The primary focus of the problem should actually be moving power away from the public as much as possible. Uh, actually, well, that's, that's a good audience for this. Well,
0: actually, I am... Well, I think that Andrew Yang's effort is, like, certainly not coming across particularly well on many fronts. And there are vanishingly small numbers of people who are actually naturally in the constituency they are pursuing. And so I am, which is sad, by the way. Uh, however, I do think ranked choice voting is a big deal because I think that there are particularly bad Hegelian dialectic dynamics going on in our political system and that ranked choice voting has in fact experimentally been proven to be good at slowing them down. And if we can't find something better I think they are a vast improvement over not having it.
1: Uh, Say more. Like, what what Hegelian dynamics are you talking about? Vote for me, because I'm
0: not him. And he says, vote for me, because I'm not her. Right? And then every time one of them gets worse, the other one says, oh, okay, I can be worse now, because you can't vote for the other guy. And, like, essentially, you know, if you look at the modern... Political system, you see a lot of like the selling point of each side is that not the other one, and that, like you have to pick a side because otherwise these horrible things will happen that the other side wants. And I don't like it. Uh, it's quite bad. Like if you, and also it, it's we're seeing a hollowing out of the middle of the political spectrum, which is what Andrew Yang is observing, right? Like the moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans are having a hell of a time winning elections and getting to Congress and getting to the Senate. Because of the primary system, whereas you see things like concretely, Lisa Murkowski's chances of surviving in the Senate in Alaska are much better because Alaska is ranked choice voting. Right to just be very concrete. Similar. Yeah,
1: the funny thing is, I I think I agree with you about like the empirical observations there. Like I think I think yeah, you just look at like betting odds, right? Murkowski is doing a lot better than anyone who would be remotely comparable to her. Uh, I, I think like I think the reason why this is the wrong level of analysis is like the problems that matter aren't actually like partisan problems. They're more like they're more like discovery pro or like exploration problems, right? Like if if the if the government was less polarized, would we have a CDC that doesn't suck? Like I think the answer is actually no. And I think that like you look at like the Canadian Public Health Service Right, which is much less polarized. I, I actually live in Canada right now, um, even though I'm an American citizen. Uh, I, I think Canada's response was actually far worse. And the reason why it was far worse is actually that it was less polarized. Right, If you actually have people who are just defying national lockdown restrictions, like, uh, sure, maybe in the early phases, you want like a South Korea style response. You want to have like actual coordination. But like, given that you do not have actual coordination uh, the best thing you can do is actually just like experimentation and you know like it could have gone the other way right maybe the, the maybe the republicans were imposing like the costly and ultimately ineffective lockdowns and the democrats were 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 polarized the opposite way and they rebelled right but either way like so this is something that I've talked about before right um polarization and experimentation are like loose synonyms.
0: I think covid presented a relatively rare situation in which polarization happens to work for us in important ways and also against us in other important ways, right? Like it drove down vaccine, uh, willingness. yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And that might be like one of the most, it's arguably the most important thing in the whole operation. I do agree that Canada's response seems overall to have been worse and that a potential, like, unified response by both parties, moderates might have actually been, like, more like Canada's, a lot more like Canada's, and that would have been bad. But yeah, like I, I
1: mean, like, you just look at Massachusetts, right?
2: Like-
0: right, but I sort of, I don't think that's how most things go, and in particular, like, I think that having a highly polarized situation where the government, think of it this way. You want a polarized situation in COVID because you want the government to be paralyzed. You want the government to not be able to do the thing that it naturally wants to do. And this is not that rare, right? Where like the thing that the partisans would get together to do, to would would, would come together to do is worse than them doing nothing. And so like there is something to be said for having a Congress where man's life, liberty and property are safe because they can't pass any laws. Right? like There is definitely something you said for that, but it does mean that everything can't be fixed in some important sense. And it also means that at any point, there is the danger that the whole thing will snap and break, right? And like, so if there are either we actually needed a robust response, right? If we had a COVID that was far worse than COVID was, and it actually was right to engage in a dramatic response, our partnership would have screwed it up quite a bit. If we need to do a second tarp, right, for example, today, I think it fails. Mm. And I think that, like, literally people go to their cash machines to get their money from their paycheck and it doesn't work on Monday. And companies' commercial paper starts failing. And, like, we see huge disruptions and we might have a giant lock breakdown of civil order and a rash of giant bankruptcies of all of the major banks. Like, it could be really, really bad if 2008 happened again because we are so polarized for anyone to take one for the team, right? We just don't have that ability anymore, concretely. And yeah, if COVID had been, you know, 10 times as deadly, what would we have done, right? The polarization would have worked against us all of a sudden. Like it would have been quite bad.
1: And- Yeah, I agree with you on both of these points, I think what we're disagreeing about is like both the probability distribution and like the imminence okay, of, so- of like type two errors. Right. Uh, like right. I see the probability of basically like a centralization and increasing operation of like basically anti-market instincts as much more imminent right now than either like, covid covid but with death rate 10x or like or like actually i i have not thought about the possibility of 2008 version 2 as being this bad introducing the data point like that, that might shift shift my analysis the other way I, I think i agree with you on this right so the other
0: thing uh, right, other things to consider are things like well if you're worried about severe anti-market action um you know a very radicalized, a radicalized Democratic Party suddenly getting sufficient levers of power, uh, and working and getting rid of all of its Joe Manchin-style moderates is kind of the way that that happens, like quite badly. And also, I think we do need to be worried about a Republican uh, attempt to overturn our democratic process at this point, and that this part, this this partisanship on both sides is heading us uh, straight towards that happening. Or alternatively, the Democrats seeing the Republicans about to do it, they were doing it first. Yeah, yeah the Republicans.
1: So, like, yeah, a lot of this analysis is kind of based off of the idea. Like, I think that most people's idea of how political parties work is based on the Democratic Party, and that most, most like imaginings or tellings of the Republican Party actually overturning an election are is like based on assuming the Republican Party works like how the Democratic Party works. The Democratic Party works where there's like an uneasy acceptance of radicals and extremists into the bureaucracy. The Republican Party works where there is like pretty open contempt and there is open contempt between the Republican bureaucracy and its elected officials, and like the rank and file voter, and it there's just like somehow a mechanism for like papering that over with like owning the libs, right? I think the best single best writer on this is Richard Hinania. Uh, have you ever have you ever read his stuff?
0: I know who you're speaking of. <laughs> I read, Do you
1: know him for reading his stuff or from his Twitter trolling?
0: Mostly from his Twitter trolling. I have read some of his stuff, which is far from all. It, you know. Unfortunate. Um, it's, yeah,
1: he's, yeah. Uh, quite, he's quite different on Twitter. Uh, that, that's for sure. But, but his reading is really worth it. Uh, and, like, I think just empirically looking at the major events of the Republican Party from Trump and before, it's like there is just this open hostility and willingness to basically like say no to the population and people say this in terms of like okay there are like some people who are willing to uh defect and there are some people who are willing to like symbolically act right so they're able willing to like symbolically act in support of like trump or whatever and the ultimate kind of like decoder ring for this is that actually there are ways to symbolically act in support of Trump that sabotage Trump. And in fact, that if you just list the ways to symbolically act in ways that sabotage Trump versus ways to symbolically act in ways that reinforce Trump, like 9 out of 10 or like far more than that, like 95 out of 100 times, it's people, the Republicans, the Republican establishment, like, like it or not, they kind of just will act in this way. And ma- part of this is like adaptation. Part of this is like maybe they're actually smart enough to like realize this. I'm not completely sure. Um, but if you just like map it out in this way, it's like this isn't a shockingly anti-egalitarian party. This is like not even it's like the premise of it being functioning anything like a democratic And, like, the Democratic Party is just, like, off the table. And, in fact, like, people are kind of, like, the really, truly, like, radical Republicans are, like, kind of right when they critique the Republican Party. It's just that, like, I kind of just think it's a good thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't think it would be the best use of the podcast to go too deep into it, but I I see the Republican Party has having gone undergone much more of a transformation uh since twenty fifteen than you have.
1: Mm, that's that's fair. I think there are ways to like Yeah, this is actually the subject of I think a book that I am actually pursuing writing this time. Uh, based on, based on roughly three articles and like six Twitter threads that I have so far of like, of talking about like, basically like, non-denominational populism, right? Of saying like, the one commandment is removing, is, is removing like legacy bureaucrats and, that there is actually a way which is very similar to historical, historical comparisons of this happening. There's a way to like very peacefully and very sanely go about uniting all of the people in, uh, in these different layers of analysis who all understand that actually like, we just need to remove these people from power, right? We, We just need to remove these legacy bureaucrats from power. We need a CDC that like does not ban COVID tests, um but yeah, uh yeah, if you don't want to spend time on that, that's 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 fine by me. Uh I'm just trying to I, I'm like doing the traceback.
2: Yeah, yeah, trace
1: like, uh, what is the most recent pivot point that we wanna look at? Um Yeah, like how do you see this kind of institution of the future, right? This institution that is not an immoral maze. Uh, how do you see that being set up? Right. What What are the core principles? Of course, this is going to be reductionist. But what What is our like starting point for okay. how to set up this institution? Oh gosh. All right. Um. And like, no penalty for reductionism, or no penalty for like missing things here. No, no, no. So,
0: so the first, the first thing is you know, you accept that you know this is your fate.
2: Yes. In the long
0: run, right? If you're too big, and so you try to keep things small. You try to keep things new. You try to keep things, you know, rotating in some sense in and out. Um, You try to have them operate as independently as possible from the rest of the superstructure. Um, You make sure to try and get founder effects as best you can on the new structure. You try to, yeah, this is obviously huge. You place this, you know, a strong priority on this kind of continuity uh, while turning things over. And that sounds like a contradiction, but you do what you got to do. Um, but more to the point, you try to give these bureaucracies as little to do as possible. You try to give them as little responsibility <laughs> as possible. Right? Like,
1: it's not... That- yeah, is this just like libertarianism? Which is fine, right? I'm pretty I'm good friends with a lot of libertarians. Of all the libertarians, there are always
0: sixteen of them, so you can just talk to them, right? No. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes. Uh.
0: So yeah, I would say, to a large extent, of course, it's libertarianism, right? Like it's yeah, you know, the argument that with libertarians, or, with libertarians are missing in this conversation, in this discussion. Is libertarians have this idea that the government is like uniquely bad? And I think there's some of that, but to a large extent, it's that large organizations are bad and the government is just the yeah. largest organization by nature because it has to be. And it's larger than it's ever been.
1: And yeah, there's this thing yeah. that where it, like, becomes what you think of as a government organization, right? This is something that Balaji has talked about, right? Where, like, it's it's not just, like, IBM is, like, captured, is, like, taken over by the government. It's, like, IBM becomes so big that it becomes a government, and, in fact, it captures the government, not the other way around, right?
0: It captures the government or it is brought into the structure. I mean, it has some kind some of regulatory capture. The idea that it fully captures the government, you know, like, is...
1: Yeah, obviously not everything. But, you know, like patent regulation.
0: Oh, sure, it can cover like remarkably large stretches of things. And like I, I, today, we'd say Google, I assume, right? Or yeah, rather than IBM, but same idea.
1: I don't think Google has that much power yet over the government. IBM's um, market cap
0: is not very high, and none of its pro, none of its products seem irreplaceable. I very much doubt if IBM has that much influence right now. I've never
1: heard of it. Yeah, yeah that's it. fair. Like IBM, it's not what it was. But sorry, go on. Yeah.
0: So like, yeah, you could argue that like the, you know, Google and Facebook and Apple and so on are like effectively government agencies. So people have argued this. I think that's more wrong than right, but there's not nothing there. But even if they're not, they're still pretty large organizations. And that's enough in some important sense. And also like I talked about how, you know, all the different mazes, all the different organizations will inherently work together in some senses like to cooperate with each other, right? Because they will notice that they are all operating on the same principles. The people who are maze people inside yeah. one organization will work with the maze people in another organization.
1: Yeah, and they're like naturally clumpy, right? Like the, the, the principle is to be clumpy, right? So it is to like clump together in these kind of conformist in these kind of conformist swarms. So it's like it's not that they're working together through some sort of like, and of course you're good on this, but I want to, I want to make sure for my audience, right? Like it's not that they're working together in this kind of like explicit way. It's that like, well, you have, you have an ideology that clumps things together. Of course they clump together, right? Like, of course people with that ideology clump together.
0: Right. And I, I don't want to break up Amazon or Apple or
1: anything. But... Yeah. Uh, someone, I think like Marshall Kosloff had this point that like you break up Amazon, you'll get six companies that still, that still, like band parlor or whatever, right? It it doesn't it doesn't change the inherent like it, it doesn't hand it change the inherent like cultural effect.
0: Yeah, it probably doesn't. Uh, but I do want to encourage the market to include more smaller businesses on every scale, and I want to do that by taking our finger off the scale, where we introduce all of these regulatorily captured rules around what people can do that just protect the people who've already done the things they need to do and already know how to conform to all the regulations and pay all the fixed costs involved in all of that, right? Like, we we explicitly favor small business occasionally with, like, the Promote Small Business Act of whatever year. But most of our rules are almost always pro-big pro business in ways that give them an unnecessary edge. And I'm not anti-big business, but I'm also not Tyler Cowen sending a love letter to it in the form of a book.
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) And the other thing, my strongest critique of libertarianism, uh, I mean, I guess this is kind of departing from the initial problem statement a little, is that libertarianism, like contemporary libertarianism as it is, just like sucks at winning power. (laughs) So so I would say Libertarianism –
0: so the the full libertarianism is just crazy town, right? Like you literally have people who are like in a presidential debate where some of them are for requiring driver's licenses and some of them are against requiring driver's licenses.
2: And they're having a (laughs) party debate about
0: this, right? This is not a metaphor. This happened, Right. Or like Austin was like in the debate, he's like, I don't think people should have driver's license if I'm remembering correctly who was who. And then this other, you know, and then like, you know, Gary Johnson, former governor of Arizona, has to step up and defend his pro driver's license position and why he should be allowed to be the nominee of this party or something like that. It's completely nuts. But I would say you don't need to go that far. Right. We're talking on the margin, like all good economists or we should be. And as far as I can tell, like all the people who like are just physically modeling what's happening, agree to, I wouldn't call it full libertarianism, and libertarian party, but you know, libertarian light style, like you need to actually let people do things and build things and like work and make trades and earn money and just generally go about their lives. Like, not completely, no matter what, but, like, everyone agrees that, like, you know, we're just getting in the way of things way too much. And this is not, like, a hard point to make. The problem, as you say, is that the libertarian movement has broadly sucked at winning power most of the time. Uh You could argue it succeeded once, quite importantly, in 1980, right? It didn't do it on its own line, but, like, what was the Reagan Revolution?
1: Yeah, that's fair enough. And that, But it's also... Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Finish, just, saying, your, finish your... I, I was just
0: saying, and that seems rather important to, like, us having the nice things we have in many ways, like, compared to if we hadn't gotten some of the good parts of that, right, regardless of what you think of the other parts. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so... the I think the main commentary about the Reagan revolution is that it basically left like the most entrenched parts off the table, right? Like the things that would have mattered the most in terms of certainly reforming health agencies, uh, reform, uh, reforming like civil rights bureaucracies, uh, reforming a lot of the kind uh, uh, reforming a lot of the, um, the kind of uh delegation powers of the executive, right? And you can say there's been some progress on that recently through through the courts. But like a lot of these things were just not done. <laughs> right? That that would be like the critique of the Reagan Revolution.
0: I mean it's a perfectly fair critique of pretty much every anything that's been done in politics for a long time. That to the extent,
2: that's they, fair. That's yeah fair. to the extent they did good
0: things they didn't accomplish the really impactful, like full version of the thing they were trying to do. And I think I would agree with it for pretty much all of the things I wish I'd done more, or I'm very happy with the things that they did. I wish you'd gone farther. And yeah, the struggle continues, and even if he had successfully done all of the things that I would have liked, and none of the things that I wouldn't have liked, I am sure that everyone would have immediately gone about trying to reverse a lot of that one way or another over time. Right? You try to hit a reset button, and like, get rid of all this croft, and let things move again for a while, right? And declog the pipes. But the pipes will start to clog. Like, there's no way to deal with it. Because, again, like, the reason why the Libertarian Party will never win power and sucks at winning elections is because the American public is not Libertarian.
1: The American- Even then, like, I think even if the... I mean, okay, well, like, the, the, there's kind of, like, a chicken and the egg problem here, right? Because I think a lot of people don't really have preferences. They have, or, like, they don't really have, like, policy preferences. They have, like, aesthetic preferences. And and basically, you need, like, a very good marketing operation. And I also think the Libertarian Party's marketing operation just sucks.
0: Ignore the actual party, right? It, it, yeah, it, it really sucks. And, by the way, as far as I can tell, it's been taken over by crazies in the last year or so. Like, in a way that, like... And not like the usual libertarian crazies, but like actually bad crazies. But I don't. <laughs> have... It's
1: funny. <laughs> That's a very funny clarification. Well, yeah, uh, but, 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 but,
0: you know, Groom Supreme is is kind of crazy, but he's good fun, right? Like this is not that.
1: So I don't actually I don't actually know all that much about what happened. Uh, do, do you? Like, do you want to enlighten me?
0: As far as I can tell, there was a change in leadership, and the new leadership is less traditional libertarian and more things that like, one doesn't want to be caught endorsing in public. But like, <laughs> I haven't investigated enough that I would be comfortable like going into details. I just know that like, I'd already kind of given up as a vehicle. Like these people are kind of a joke at present. And like, not that I've never voted for them, but yeah, that's it. <laughs> So yeah. Right. You know, Gary Johnson wasn't a joke,
1: right? Like for example, like
0: at all. Yeah. Debatable compared to Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. Come on.
1: Okay, okay, <laughs> that, that, that's fair. That's
2: fair. Yeah.
0: Like I mean, maybe Evan McMullen was a was less of a joke. I don't know. Like it, it's it's weird how what your perspective is. But the whole problem is not that like they've done a bad job of selling the things that people would like if they were sold them in a good package. The problem is that people fundamentally do not want the thing that's being sold. Right in terms of and you say their aesthetics and the way they react to those proposals, they don't want those proposals. Now they do want the world that would exist if those proposals were enacted and you waited 10 years or even better 20 years, but they don't know that. And their brains do not make the connection, right? Like people don't actually understand economics. They don't have physical world models where they understand what the benefits are that will accrue. They think that this is all going to be a nightmare because they fundamentally just can't grok the principles involved. And while I do think that, like, people are perfectly capable of grokking these principles, it's not because, like, there's an elective 1% that's smart enough or anything. Like, pe- regular people can absolutely get, get their handles on it. But political parties just don't have this kind of bandwidth. Right? Mm. I, I don't... Like, this is the kind of thing that you would have to learn in a school setting or like you'd have to study, right? If only to unlearn the stuff they've been taught that's wrong, right? Which is, <laughs> but to be clear, like that's the thing that people have known for a very long time. Well, alternatively, you can learn it through experience, right? Like, right. Like I think that the American people used to be much more libertarian style and we used to have a much more libertarian style of governance. And that was because we were a nation of small businesses, a nation of people who yeah, did it- business right like if you if you actually have to like manage the accounts for your farm, if you have to mind your store, then you understand exactly how much screwing things up screws things up
1: yeah, that's fair like this is this is very interesting, right like the idea that like the best the best like basically like education campaign is like embodied. Right. I I think that there's a lot into that. Like Tyler Cowan talks about this every once in a while. Right. Like the way that you do this, the way that you actually get people to learn this is not that you send that, like you go into every public school and like give them like an economics textbook. Like maybe that helps on the margins. I don't know. Uh, I don't know the actual effectiveness of that, but like, it's actually like you do these trials where you like run, like you run like a trading market in your class. Right, I also don't have data on this as well, but like intuitively to me, or like not just intuitively, but like drawing on things from like other other domains, like that seems about right to me. That, yeah, that, if, that would be much more conducive. What you would do is,
0: you know, instead of having kids spend a hundred hours in community service in high school because we want to feel better about ourselves because all our kids worked in a soup kitchen, we sort have of just actually paid people to do the job, right? Like we enslaved our kids for media labor, instead. We could have them try to run a small business, right? I think, like you know, how do you how do you start out? You have everybody make a lemonade stand when they're six, and you have it, right? Then you have uh, someone come in and you shut it down, right? You have to for not having a permit, and that's how your that's how your education begins, and and how the economy really works. <laughs>
1: That's that's pretty brutal for those four, those 4 six year olds. I mean, but, like, but then
0: like yeah. then like you plan to have that is
1: how the world works. You
0: plan to have it open for like you know they have spend spend three days or a week or whatever it is at your stand, like learning to sell a product and satisfy your customer. And then when you would have said okay, it's time to move on and do something else, instead you have the inspector show up and say you can't do this anymore. Right, and like I would, and the license would have cost you ten times your profits or something crazy, right? Like, and you have to spend, like, three months waiting, and you have to do all the other things, and then you study that the next week, and now you understand something. And then, like, as a freshman in college, like, instead of taking a bunch of classes, everybody's required to start a small business. <laughs> right? You keep the profits if it succeeds. But, like, the idea that, like, it's part of a normal person's education to get practical experience. And, like, everyone's got to, like, try to like turn some money into more money in some sense or try to, you know, make it big or whatever it is. And I'm like, yeah, I think you got a shot, but yeah, I agree. You basically can't learn this just from a textbook. I a normal person Uh under our current educational system. It's just not, it's just so anti-intuitive. It's not how the brain wants to think. Like I didn't get it by default, right? Like I picked it up over the course of many years engaging in, many economic-style activities and studying college-level economics. But it's tough. Like, I think, yeah, would one economics class in high school do a lot of good? Absolutely. But I don't think it's sufficient. Certainly it's not sufficient if we're not willing to, like, put our thumb on the scale and just, like, tell people the answer in some sense. Right? Like, if we are... This is... Sorry, go on. Because, like, we, we, we absolutely tell people, right... This as children, they should have this kind of common sense, naive morality and model of how things work and what's good and bad and what causes things to be good and bad, right? And so, like every children's show teaches your children to like, you know, be vegetarian, right? And to like hate the people who look superficially bad in whatever sense is allowed to be look superficially bad this year, and you know, you should you know be kind to people and blah blah, blah and like all this stuff. And, like, nobody teaches them how, like, you know, opening a profitable business can let you scale production and make sure everybody ends up with more stuff.
1: Yeah, well, like, here's the thing with, like, libertarianism, right, is that it's, like, a very kind of explicit ideology, right? It's, like, probably the most explicit ideology out of at least all of the popular ones, right? And, like, you just look at the number of words that you said there, Right? It's like, wow, libertarians suck at propaganda <laughs> or or, to put it kindly, libertarians suck at marketing, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, <laughs> well, what is like a what is like a three word phrase that we can use that isn't like that is that like actually means something to people right that 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 it like looks at their actions, right that that they can like see in their own lives for like libertarianism, right? And this is something that I don't think I, I mean, like, I, I've only thought about it briefly, uh, but this is not something that I've been able to, to land yet,
0: right? I mean, if you can inject three words into someone, trade is good is probably the best three words, right?
1: No, but that's what I mean when I say, like, like, trade is good doesn't mean something to someone who, like, is just, especially to, like, a 10-year-old, right? Like, that's not, that's just not their experience, right? Yes, like,
0: it is! I it hang on. Is so it I, yes? Of course, it's their experience. And then we teach them out of it. Like so. Like okay. Huh. Think about a kid, right? A kid has some stuff, right? The kid has these toys, and they want these other toys. Or this kid has like strawberry ice cream, and their friend has chocolate ice cream, and they make a trade, right? And they won. They got better off. Otherwise, they wouldn't have made that trade, right? Like trade. If you just let people act like normal people who have, like, some form of property, they will learn through experience that, like, trade is good. It helps the people in the trade, or they wouldn't have done the trade. And then we educate them out of this somehow, right? Like, or they don't think it transfers. But their personal experience? Like, nobody thinks they shouldn't go to the supermarket and buy food. Like.
1: Okay, this is fair. (laughs) Um, I, I think I was, or yeah, you're you're right on this point. It's just like okay, so like I, I'm working a little bit backwards here, but let me know if you agree with my intuition here. That if we just told everyone like trade is good, like that would actually not be that effective of a message, right? That seems like something that's been tried. Well, and I mean, like,
0: like to be clear, like I'm not saying that like you should believe me just because I said these three words, right? Or that I can just say these three words with no context and no explanation. And it should work on somebody. Uh, but like, that's true of basically every three word message, right? Like it's a little bit too short yeah. to actually justify itself.
1: Uh So what I mean here is that like, we have these programs that are like, okay, like be kind to people. Okay. And we have like, is there, like, an equivalent to that, which is just, like, trade is good? Like, would that work? Or would that work to the same effect? And, you know, like, maybe the answer is yes. I actually don't know. But uh, my intuition is that it wouldn't.
0: I think it's harder. Uh, I think it definitely goes against this kind of common sense, naive, like, feelings of goodness that's wrapped up in various, like, aspects of evolutionary theory and mate selection. And it's it's a giant mess. And it's not inherently fixable, uh, but yeah, I think it can be overcome. I think people are perfectly capable of understanding these things through practical experience, trying to, the problem is that you can't actually, like I, I could inject the reasoning in very few words, right? In theory, somebody who doesn't get it should be able to have something like everybody wins any voluntary trade and thus they were enlightened. And that's five words. You only get about five words, right? You're not supposed to get only three words. Three words is a bit harsh. The rule is you get okay, five sure. words, right? And yeah, that's those, fine. And those five words are like, and then she was enlightened, like right? in theory, or she should be. Mm-hmm. But like the problem is no, right? Yeah, that, that doesn't work that way. Like They're not going to actually reason it out and figure out why this implies all of the rest of it. Uh, but Uh But yeah, like it's... I think a decent number of people kind of get it, uh, but it's, and like, I have seen it sold in some ways, and we do occasionally pass free trade agreements.
1: We do. Um, and like, man, like. We're negotiating a new one. Did you hear? Oh, we are? Yeah. I mean, it, one, oh, is it the Taiwan? Yeah, the, I mean, Taiwan, Japan, the one,
0: yeah. the one place on earth you might not want to negotiate a free trade agreement with right now. It would be yeah. Taiwan, right? <laughs> like, literally anywhere else except Taiwan and Russia. I'd be like, well, obviously, yes. <laughs> you should
2: just... Yeah, just, it's just like, like,
1: that's interesting. Like, we, we have to, like, frame the trade agreement as, like, attacking a- attacking foreigners, right? Attacking China, right? And to be fair, like, foreigners that are genuinely threatening to us, right? Whose government is genuinely threatening to us. I, uh, I agree. I, but, I, like... We have to frame it as like an attack, like an offensive strike. It can't just be like, it can't just be like trade. It's
0: almost like, well, the Chinese overreacted to the Pelosi trip. And now like, we're going to retaliate against them by like signing a trade agreement. Right. We're negotiating a trade agreement. That's, that's our escalation. We'll just I'm <laughs> totally in favor of this being the way that we diplomatically escalate conflicts by negotiating trade agreements <laughs> with people who you don't like. Like, can you imagine if that was just how most conflicts were settled? Right? Like, you know, like, yeah, okay. So like, you know, you're, Iraq is like being mean. So we're like, okay, we're going to negotiate a trade agreement for Iraq if you don't settle down. And they're like, oh no, <laughs> like, that's, that's wonderful.
1: Yeah. I think this does say something about like, about basically like political psychology though, right? Like this is kind of, this is kind of like successful, like libertarian me- messaging, right? Like this is, this is kind of like the thing that we wanted. <laughs> Yeah.
0: I mean, obviously yeah, I was, I, I'm, I'm happy that by and happy the Biden administration has decided to negotiate a trade agreement with anyone, they would have been my last pick. Like literal last pick, like not counting Vladimir Putin. Yeah. And last year it would have been my actual last pick. But yeah. but despite that, I'm happy to see the gesture. I appreciate the gesture. Right. Like and like. I also noticed that, like, we keep passing rules requiring us not to trade. Mm. Like, the Biden administration's favorite thing to do is prevent people from trading, right? Like, as far as I can
1: tell. Right. (laughs) Yeah, did you hear about, like, the baby formula thing?
0: I may have written a few posts.
1: Oh, nice, nice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that, that was just very funny for the audience. For the audience, like there were all sorts of, there was like a CDC ban, not based on the content, which they admitted was fine, like the actual baby formula itself, but on the labeling, uh, it's like, you know, we don't like these labels, it's going to ban European uh, baby formula. I don't uh,
0: don't want to blame the wrong agency. It was an FDA ban. CDC was not involved. But yes, I was responsible, among other things, for apparently creating the canonical version of the meme where you have the two shop, where you have the, the pawn shop people. And it's like, can you stop uh, restricting supply? And they say, best I can do is subsidize <laughs> command.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Wow.
0: Yeah. Okay. Our plane came up yeah. With it and I finally Uh-oh. memed it properly. And now, now we can agree. Yeah.
1: We're all happy now. <laughs> That's wonderful. Okay. Yeah. I love that meme. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I... Uh, someone who I've been trying to 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 get on the show like shared this meme many many times. Uh, it was great. Um, all right. On that note, uh, I don't know do you do you want to go longer? It's been a really fun time for me. This is one of like the best episodes for. Oh, for
2: cool. Sure. Yeah,
0: it's been a fun time. I think that you know it's gone on about as long as people's real attention spans actually are, and uh, it's probably better if we just do this again sometime.
1: Yeah, that's fair. Uh, So the last question of the show, uh, as always, for everyone, is uh, what is something with too much chaos and needs more order and something with too much order that needs more chaos? Preferably something we didn't already talk about. (laughs) 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 This has been getting harder, as it has become basically the only thing that is talked about on this show.
0: God, you're reminding me of the Principia Discordia. Right, the Aristic Illusion and the Anaristic
1: Illusion. Uh, same word I don't know just
0: oh, the idea that, you know at first you have the um the the illusion that the world is disordered. this is the heuristic illusion, and then you realize the world is actually ordered, and this is the anaristic illusion. I see <laughs> anyway, so something that's ordered and needs more chaos um, let me think about this actually. Childhood.
1: Uh, do you want to go on? Uh, you, you can give a brief explanation if you want. Yeah. Or if you don't want, you don't want to do that. Yeah. I, I it
0: is just explain itself, right? We, we, we force these people, we force these little people, yeah, you know, like who are, you know, literally to, to spend their lives like under guard, watched by adults at all times. We tell them exactly what to do the majority of their waking hours. We don't let them just be chaotic like they used to be. And I think this is clearly a good example of like, there's way too much order in childhood and it needs more chaos. Hmm. Like, so that's my answer to that side. So what's, what's chaotic and needs more order. I mean <laughs> that we haven't talked about, yeah, like it's it, it's there aren't that many things that are that chaotic
2: that aren't like of I kind of order. um
0: like the streaming television landscape is too chaotic
1: and needs more order. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. It also needs more
0: chaos in certain specific ways. So like, it's always like, like the answer is never like turn the dial. Like just make us chaos. Or like make <laughs> us order. Right. Like make us order is never That's good. Fair. That's never good. You're just calling for order. And like, this, you're never going to be happy. And you just call for chaos. well we all know, you know, like, well, I wish things were different. Oh no. Right. Like,
2: <laughs> yeah, that's fair.
0: So yeah, um I would say yeah, what needs more order.
1: Um I don't know. We kind of already talked about this, but I think the most common answer for order among other guests is like IR because IR you kind of just want things to be like kind of the same as it was yesterday, right? You, just, so, you want you things to IR? kind of continue. International relations.
0: International relations.
2: I
1: I think that's the most common answer, because you just, like, don't want any wars. You just want things to be around the same as they were before.
2: And that's certainly a
0: reasonable answer. Um, Yeah, the New York City subway system needs more order.
2: Yeah, that's fair. Like, like
0: just a, you know, concrete, right? Like, I wish it worked more orderly. Uh, I mean, it's not a huge deal, right, as these things go, but... But yeah, um startup equity table governance
1: needs more order. Uh, Ooh, okay. That's a good answer. Yeah. Do, do you wanna do you wanna elaborate?
0: Well, as in like it seems like in practice people just play completely fast and just with the cap table and feel free to confiscate anyone's equity at any time for any reason. And like they just sort of mostly don't. But like I've had it happen to me. I've had it, like, really be about to happen to me. I've been pressured to do it to other people. It's bad. You know, I wish we treated it like property. Like, like you actually owned your equity. Like, it was shares in a company or something. Like, you had to buy and sell it. Like, it would be good.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Like, I've definitely heard. I don't know. I haven't really talked about it on the show quite a lot. But, yeah, the kind of... The actual, like, funding landscape of startups is just definitely as someone who is also like prospected doing a startup, it's like, I understand nothing. I don't even think I can predict anything. I'm not sure if anyone understands anything.
0: <laughs> I think a lot of people understand quite a bit, myself included.
1: Other people understand about, okay. more than
0: I do, but I understand a decent amount. And also uh, I am fortunate enough that I have people I can call, right? So I, I have VCs who I have now formed relationships with such that like, If I ask them for advice, I might not get money, but I would get advice. Hmm. (laughs) And uh, sometimes I think, well, now that I have all these relationships with VCs, I should be out there trying to raise money. And then my brain goes, no, do not do that. (laughs) (laughs) And when I think about it, I was like, well, maybe I'll convince myself that I should ignore that. And then I'm like, God, I hope I don't because my life gets so much worse. But like, at the same time, kind of want to make something real happen. I don't know. We'll see, but
1: uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is, I promised the last question was the last question, but it's actually not so that's um, fine. like, what do you, what do you think about when you're deciding, like, what do you want to use your skills for? Right. You're, you're designing a game right, right now.
0: I mean, the game is designed, right. I'm still like working on the game, right. but like it's now development, right. It's now like make more cards and like, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and I'm also a chief economist,
1: And technically
0: I'm the director of innovation for Emergence at Emergence.gg. But yes. So I would say like I pursued the game starting a few years ago because I saw an opportunity. And because existing tradable card games weren't tradable, they were collectible card games. And they were using predatory business models. And it pissed me off. At the same time, I saw a distinct opportunity to combine them with crypto. Right? That like this hadn't been done by any game that was competent. And I thought it was a huge market opportunity to put cards on the blockchain and then get value both from the TCG engine of value and from the general uh, desire for blockchain. And unfortunately it took us four years to get to market, uh, through various Oof. problems. Uh, COVID killed our fundraising for a while.
2: lot oh, of other things.
0: And like just generally, uh, my co-founder was holding out for, good money and didn't want to take like random Chinese crypto money and, <laughs> and a reflection that was just completely stupid. But like, I understand. Like it's a, part of the, I agree. Like the funding landscape is so weird, right? It's like, she's like, well, we want to have funding from good people, right? Who can help us. who will set us up well for later. But you know, if I really wanted to, I could just call up a bunch of Chinese people who are just desperate to spend their crypto money somewhere and get us millions of dollars like tomorrow if I really wanted to. And probably at a higher valuation. And I'm like, so do that. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: and then next time, you know, a bunch of different Chinese people. I don't see the problem. There's not a national security concern. But, you know, different people work differently and have different, you know, ways they think things work. But, yeah, if I could go back in time, I would have done that. And we would have gotten our thing done before the NFT craze. And I'd be like super rich right now. So, you know, we still might work out great, but like, you know, it's it's now like, well, we're just now introducing the game to the public. We just got our you know, first set of users so that have any size and it's, you know, hopefully going really well, but it's hard to tell what players' real reactions are, right? Because like so few people tell you whether they're enjoying your game and whether they're likely to keep going and then monetize when the time comes to sell them stuff. Because right now we're just giving the game away, right? To get people interested right and we'll keep giving the base game away but yeah you know, the, the the key question is will they convert but yeah no i i have always been a gamer and i've always loved playing games and you know if we didn't have various imminent threats to the stability of our civilization and the ongoingness of our lives and opportunities uh like i might you know face the as far as I'm concerned, I might face, you know, an AGI that wiped out all value in the universe, or the end of American democracy, or you know, the ability to live forever, depending on in some small part, my own decisions. And that makes it tough to sit around playing games.
1: Yeah, that's also that's also my experience. For for me it's more like I just want to do I just want to do like math research. Like, math research is just, I could just spend all day doing it, but at the same time, like, this is so irrelevant to anything and everything. Maybe in a hundred years it'll be relevant, but even then it'll be, like, so, just a shred of, like, basically anything else that I could be doing. I mean, what it's what's like, weird I about
0: that is that a lot of the people I know who are working on AGI safety... Right? To try and have us not mm-hmm. have all the universe's value wiped out are in fact working on math problems. So it's like one of the least, one of the least obviously worthless big picture style things to work on math problems. Obviously, maybe you're choosing like relatively unimpactful math problems that are just like, I don't know how this works. But also the history of math is filled with people who just solved random equations with no obvious use case. And then 20 years later, someone uses it and something amazing happens. I yeah,
1: like that's fair. I wouldn't
0: discount math. And like, if I was better at math, I would be doing math. Like I would have been doing math for a very long time. I, I went to college, I majored in mathematics, and I took a graduate course, and then I learned I should stop doing mathematics.
1: <laughs> what graduate course? It was analysis
0: one uh, at the graduate school, right? And so this guy comes up. He is very Russian. His accent <laughs> is very Russian, right?
1: Yes, yes. I have met, I have met several, <laughs> I met many, many people are like yes. this. Many people in math <laughs> are like this. They like
0: their math. It is one of their best qualities. And they have this, he has this sheets of paper that are covered in various manual writings. Ready right? comes to class. And <laughs> after a minute or two of introduction, he starts taking these symbols on the paper and writing those symbols on the blackboard and speaking through the equation, saying what they are in a very thick Russian accent that I can kind of understand from the first row. Right? <laughs> kind of. Actually, probably second row. I was traditionally sitting in the second row just because of the way the chairs were laid out in that row. And you know, I kind of understand what he's saying, but as the classes go by, uh he just keeps doing this, right? <laughs> like he is taking symbols from pieces of paper, writing the symbols on the board, saying what symbols he is writing on the board, and providing in a very thick Russian accent the flimsiest of scaffoldings on why these symbols represent something that I should know and I can understand. And what that means. And this compares to when I took Introduction to Modern Analysis as a freshman. And we started with, like, 1 plus 1 equals 2. And, like, they explained to me, like, and, like, this woman got up and she was, like, a middle-aged woman who, like, spoke in a normal accent. And who, like, actually explained the axioms and reasonings and things they were writing on the board. And I would often, like, try to figure out what comes next. And she would ask and I would try to answer and I would do a very good job of this. And I would like get A's and understand everything and not have to study. And it was great. And now I'm in this other class and it's like, I can barely follow what this man is saying, this really thick Russian accent. He's writing all these symbols. And then the class goes by and it becomes harder and harder to get the homework done in any reasonable semblance of anything. And finally the time comes from the test and he hands out the blue books and he says the most beautiful words that any college junior or senior, I forget which has heard, which is, if you are an undergraduate, write that on the outside of your blue book. And I know that I have passed the class because I don't know nothing, right? I know some things. I'm not actually completely lost, but I ain't going to do great. And so I fill out the test and I fill out what I can and I answer some of some of the questions and I get my B in analysis one. And I never seriously consider taking another math class because that was (laughs) ridiculous. Right? And it's like, if I was meant to be a mathematician, that wouldn't have bothered me. Right? If I was really meant to spend my life on this, there wouldn't have been a problem. And it's like, yeah. I majored in mathematics partly because it was like the thing I was good at, partly because it was kind of the default thing to do, partly because it'll look good in terms of like I got a real degree from my university, from my real university, partly because like I wanted to be in the same classes as the girl I had a crush on. So like Aww. many reasons, as they say, right? Many reasons. But <laughs> In the end, it's like, well, do I want to struggle with this all day? And for what? To try and have a shot at being a math professor? Like, no, this is stupid. I can do better. And so I like I can just play games all day. So I can do that instead.
1: Like, yeah. yeah, like that more than anything. Like if, like, if doing math is not a sacred good for you, I think it's like, it, it's pretty hard to... To either like sustain or compete, compete even just as like motivating yourself to do math. It has to be like, it has to be like, um, Ramanujan having like the Hindu gods come to him in his dreams and like, and like pursuing it in that way, basically, right? It's pretty hard to, it's pretty hard to want to do math just in terms of like a simple, like, like, uh, self-perpetuation or something like that. I, I don't think anyone who does math is like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I would go so
0: far as to say that I actually was pretty much in that mode for a while. Like I, yeah, like, I took math very seriously for a while. Right? Like, I was on the national champion armour team. I was one of the, I took the USMO. You know, I, Oh, nice. Yeah, I, I, I took math seriously. I, you know, passed my cock AB in ninth grade and all that. Like, but yeah, I think that as I started to not be as good at it, it
1: was kind of like, uh,
0: okay. No, I, I, I can't do this anymore. I also just found something else that I like even better. Right. So
1: yeah, that's understandable. Yeah. I
0: don't feel bad about it. At one point I actually also asked Elias Yudkowski, right after I discovered the AI thing later, like, should I just be doing Working on math problems, trying to solve this thing. He's like, "No, no, you're not good enough. Don't try."
2: Damn.
1: Okay. I, I've never met uh, Eliza Yukaski. Yeah. So
0: I think in today's environment, he would have given me a different answer, and he would say, "Yeah, go for it," because like the time he's in his model, like there's less time, and the problems are less math loaded, and like sure, why not? But at the time, he was going for much more of a pure math then. But yeah, like, I really, really appreciated that, though. Like, you know, this whole, like, no, do not, like, be tempted to devote your life to this uh direct pursuit that, like, you know, you need comparative advantage. You don't have it. Just go keep making money, basically. Which is what I was doing at the time. Like, something that made money.
1: <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. That, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, well, this was... In in terms of, like, a conversation for the audience, I don't know. I'll have to listen to it again. But in terms of a conversation for me, this was, like, one of the, definitely, like, top two in terms of most enjoyable conversations I've had. So, like, just thanks for coming on from the bottom of my heart.
0: All right, absolutely. And I do think we should do this again at some point. But, you know, right now, I can see my voice starting to weaken. So we should call it it.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, many such cases. Thanks for listening to my conversation with V. Mauschowitz. If you like this show, then of course you can subscribe, and the number one thing you can do to help us out is to tell a friend, either online or in person. Hopefully you know someone else, you're not alone, who likes to listen to podcasts, and maybe likes to listen to the same podcasts that you do. If you enjoy the show, then odds are not only are you helping us out, but you're also helping your friend become more informed and just have a good time. If that sounds like something you'd like to do, then please help us out. And uh, let someone know. As always, you can subscribe for another excellent episode next week.